Militarization, Military, Contracts, and the Micronauts. Welcome to Marvel vs. Marvel. It is a podcast where someone who has never read a Marvel comic in their life watches the Marvel movies and TV shows, the MCU, all the projects that dominate the world of popular culture, and then quizzes a veritable Marvel expert on all the differences and similarities to the to the comic books and, and finds out all about the history and trivia of these wonderful characters from the 60s and the 70s and beyond. Hello and welcome to the Ant-Man episode of MVM. My name is Rob Holden. I am a writer, comedian and the Marvel expert half of the equation. And I'm joined right now. I'm looking deep into his blue eyes by the man that makes it all possible, by the power and the integrity of his sheer ignorance. It's Will Preston. Thanks for noticing my ignorant blue eyes. <laughs> you know what? I can't tell. I just went for blue because it just it rolls up the tongue nicely in it. I, Are they blue? Yeah, yeah. I'm blonde hair and blue eyed. Obviously, don't have hair anymore. Well, yeah. yeah I was going to say your your pink. Your pink scalp. <laughs> yeah, I'll go with that. If I was single, I would put that on my dating profile. Pink scalped. Is this just another trashy nerd and geek podcast? No. You are listening to the show that, as we have said, and as, as, our, as our listeners have latched onto and started to uh, shout back at us, you're listening to the show that analyses and contextualises iconic moments in high art and pop culture. That's what we do here <laughs> on Marvel vs. Marvel. We're here at the uh, Ant-Man episode, which we've been really looking forward to. We've, um, we've finished, we, we, had a, we had a week of delay, and we apologise for that. Will you were under the weather, mate? Nothing serious. We were we were hastened to add. It, it wasn't a, it wasn't a pandemic related uh, drop. No, no, no. Really, I was just under the weather. Uh, it just randomly hit me, literally an hour before the podcast, and I felt so guilty for telling you I can't. I, I don't know if I can do it. But it's like I hate telling anyone I'm ill at the moment because they immediately go, "Oh, it's not COVID, is it?" No, it's not. <laughs> Otherwise, I would open with, "I have COVID," not "I feel <laughs> ill." I would open with, "I have COVID." I was positive, not oh, fully a bit under the weather. Yeah, it's COVID. And and then because of our work schedules, uh, with all the other projects and things we do, and also because of the release schedule, mm. the timing of, of how we have to put this out um, for our our VIPs on Patreon first, and then to the general public. It's not it's not a case of being able to just record it the next day. Yeah, um, we we had to um, we had to wait a full week. So. You've been a week without us, but I'm sure that just makes you, you long long for us even more, even stronger, even deeper. Because as they say in the Robin Hood Fox cartoon Disney movie, fondness <laughs> makes the heart uh, grow stronger. Um, and, and, and so we've just been reveling, though, in the X-Men animated um, episode downloads and feedback that's come pouring in that is a record-breaking episode will it was i i am not surprised by this i think from the moment uh, the word go of this podcast people were going oh do x-men animated series we yeah. like that it's, it's, uh, yeah. night of the sentinels uh, in the archives if you've not listened to it but i i don't know i think you all have because it shattered it shattered some first month downloads in its first week. So some episodes out there <laughs> that got whatever in their first month of, of, of being around, 
you know, Night of the Sentinels was doing that in, its, in six days. It has been absolutely incredible and insane. We're well on our way to hitting uh, our 20,000 download mark, which is our next cool milestone that we're looking forward to. Um, but we don't, we don't really care about numbers. We care about you guys getting in touch and, and letting us know what you love and what you think and what you connect with and tell us what you're reading and, and get in touch to tell us that, that we've inspired you to make some comic book purchases and what you're reading and all of that stuff. That's what we yes. love to hear. And this episode, I know you've had to wait an extra week for it, but I really think this is so worth it. There is so much going on in this episode. Maybe from an outside glance, you might not think that the Ant-Man episode is going to be one of the top dogs. But I'm telling you, like we did with Punisher, you might not see it coming. But all of a sudden, here's a Mac Daddy episode that is packed with cool stories and trivia. Uh, In this episode, we're going to be taking a look at the most controversial and disrupted production of any MCU movie. Um, we've got tons of that. Willie P is earning his cheddar on, on this show. Mm. Um, we, we'll dive into the, the, the histories of Scott Lang and Hank Pym. We'll work out whether Hope Van Dyne, does she actually exist in the comic books or not? We're going to enjoy the insane story of Yellow Jacket and we're going to explore a failed 1970s toy line that was meant to be Ooh. Star Wars meets Transformers. That is all to come on the show in this episode. Will, before we go any further, though, <laughs> I want to keep my eye on you. I want to keep tabs on your movements when you are away from my control. What have you been doing on Twitch this last couple of weeks? Well, uh, I've actually found a game that suits me, and I've, I've got, got a, an, a growing fan base over it. So we've got some Ooh. more viewers. It's a game I have been previously and horribly addicted to called Kerbal Space Program. Oh, well, this is the trajectory game. Oh, Angles and trajectory the game. It's perfect. No, it's not any, just angle trajectories. It's like, oh, you get to like put space stations and moon bases and other things and explore planets and build buggies oh, cool. and you get to you get basically yeah you get to fly ships you get to fly planes you get to do all that but you but have, willie p doesn't care about that oh, that's too cool that's you get to, but you get to construct <laughs> them you get to construct them so there's this feeling of you've earned the right to fly this plane and i and oh like all astronauts like all astronauts they build the rockets themselves don't they will <laughs> i know i know i came with the design therefore i get to play with my, it's like it's like lego it's like building a, a, something out of lego and then going right i built this lego car now i can finally drive it and then then tweaking it <laughs> to make sure it could do better turnings and stuff and oh man i can play it for hours uh, it's got me in a lot of trouble because i think one day i stayed up till four in the morning on a work day oh, trying no. to dock uh, a satellite no space two space station parts together and it was infuriating and it just I, I didn't know that time passed. It was he's getting married, ladies and gents, as well. Yeah. I mean, this guy should be spending every waking hour really thinking about his bride to be and thinking about that big day. Instead, he's building a moon base. <laughs> she how supports we... this. She supports this. <laughs> how can we? How can we follow you, Will? We want to follow you. We want to watch you drive moon buggies and build <laughs> rocket ships. How do we go about doing that? What can we do? Well, you can find me on the Twitch, uh, Twitch.tv/slash Will Preston. 
87. I'm there Monday, Wednesdays and Fridays, 6 p.m. UK time. You can watch me. You can chat with me uh, live. Uh, we we could just you know you can just sit there and watch. We can have a little chat and ask me questions and stuff. I mean, this is your this is your time to get to know Willie. That's all I'll say <laughs> in his natural habitat. The muggly mind of Mr. Will Preston is what guides us with fresh eyes to a character. And this is, this is, we've been dealing so much, I think, recently with things like X Men. And then when we were last in the MCU, it was um, Age of Ultron, so it's the Avengers. We've dealt an awful lot with characters that are very much in the public eye and that we've already talked about. So it's interesting to now be faced with a character, a set of characters that. I'm assuming that um, the general public don't really have an awareness of. So to get that perspective, that first glimpse, we talk to Mr. Muggle, the Muggleator. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Mugglevator. I'm now just remembering Mr. Motivator, and I'm picturing your face on his body, his very athletic body. So Mr. Mr. Mugglevator, Will Preston... Can you let us know, before this movie, 2015, is advertised and comes out, have you, have you any knowledge, representing the general public, of Ant-Man? No. Short answer, no. Slightly long answer, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if Ant-Man exists. It was like, there's, there's been um, uh, superheroes based on just about everything. Every plant, animal, or mineral, there's a man at the end... What, what, but where are you getting that from? Because there's so many of them, Rob. There are so many so, superheroes. They- right, but this is so. So what? 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 I'm, what? What tends to happen is whenever you talk about Ant Man to a Muggle, what mm. happens is they then say, "Well, there's a Spider Man. Of course, there's an Ant Man." Yeah. And I don't get that logic, but okay. Well, uh, and can not- lift lift up stuff, and they can there's- go. You know. See, I know that there are tons of other characters. That are based, and I know that what you're saying is true, but the Beatle is not a famous character, <laughs> right? <laughs> the Beatles, Willie the Wisp. <laughs> Willie the Wisp isn't a famous character. None of the insect-themed characters that I know about, you would know about. So it it just seems a little. But that's where your headspace is. 2015, that, that's, your headspace. That, 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 that's my is logic. Like, oh, a, of course, there's an Ant Man. There's a Batman there's everything now. There's a Spider Man. Uh, there's a Catwoman. Yeah. I, okay. I, yeah. I would right, go. Okay, I would go. Okay. Oh, I, I, I see the pattern now. I see the logistics <laughs> behind making a superhero comic. You take an animal and then you suffix it with a man. But player, we just had Guardians of the Galaxy, Thor, the God of Thunder, Iron Man, who builds a metal suit, the Hulk, who is nothing like <laughs> that, doesn't fit into the pattern whatsoever. Apart from Iron Man, yes. Iron Man doesn't fit the pattern, does it? Yeah. There's not an iron. He's a he's a he's a mech robot controlling dude. He's a super. Uh, it's I mean, a word. I, it's a word though with man at the end, so it fits the pattern. I was talking about naming convention. <laughs> oh, and then, uh, okay. They they just build the character around the naming convention. That's how. Okay. That's that's the, the oh most basic God. way of creating a superhero. Look into any I'd love, spoof. I'd love to see. Spoof. I'd love to see you say that to Jack Kirby. To his face, he would punch your your lights out. <laughs> I think that like Stan s- and Jack just beating the crap out of you. 
I think that well, would be something we definitely film for Patreon. <laughs> uh, to be fair, I don't think Stan would get his hands dirty. He'd sit back and yell things like, Excelsior! He's like, you're not a true Oliver. So... So yeah, you had no, you had no. Um, we'll, we'll get, we'll get into some of this when we, when we, when we deal with the mailbag, because um, we've got some, we've got. I mean, I think pretty much everyone that wrote in, I don't think they'd had any experience or knowledge of this character beforehand. Mm. So they're all in your, in your boat. So then, what did you, what did you think then, based on sort of trailers and and the whole concept of, you know, well, Paul, Paul Rudd um, and and shrinking. And giant, well, they're not giant ants, but relative to him, there are giant ants and insects and things mm. on the trailer. How did that? How did that? Did that tickle your interest? Well, I just saw the film and went, "Oh, they're obviously doing this in a very comical way." I mean, Guardians of the Galaxy was a bit comical, but it was also a bit, "Hey, it's kooky, it's seventies retro music <laughs> playing as well." It's basically Star Wars, but with seventies retro music, and then this is like, okay, this looks like a superhero film where they know the character's a bit silly. Like, the concept of the character is a bit ridiculous, and they're going See, we, with it. We, we hear that an awful lot as well. And I don't think I get... I, I, we talked about this off-air. I am mm. in many ways... <laughs> I'm almost like... I don't know. I, I, like, someone raised with a parent who's got Munchausers by proxy, right? So I can't see that there's anything odd about my parent. What do you mean? Yeah, they feed me salt every day <laughs> in six healthy gallons. What's where? Uh, what? So I, I don't... I, I can, I'm, I'm just so sheltered in the Marvel Universe. Mm. Nothing about Ant-Man seems odd to me. And yet, hearing you talk about it and hearing others in the, in the mailbag talk about it, there's an awful lot of people saying... How silly it, it, it seems. Well, I, I, um, I think it's rooted in cinema showing anything involving shrinking or characters of a different size. Uh, so you've got Gulliver's Travels, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, a whole, whole load of films yeah. like that. And it's never, oh my God, what a crazy adventure. What is, it's like, this is silly. We're going to have a bit of fun with it. It's always yeah, lighthearted yeah. and fun. Therefore, if you see a superhero movie about a guy who shrinks... You're going to go, whoa, he's in for some hijinks. It's that kind of uh, feel to it. This is really interesting, and we're going we're gonna to see the, the vast difference um, in, in, in exactly that sentiment, but take it back to the 50s and the 60s, and we're going to see how that is flipped around when Ant-Man is created oh, and, yeah. and where it comes from. So that's going to be interesting. Keep that in your minds, the idea that cinema – here in 2015 and, and, and pop culture has prepared uh, Will and the general public to take it in that comical direction and then we're going we're gonna to see what that's like. Don't say anything about it now. We're going to see what it's like when we, when we head back to the, to the, to the histories. Um, and I, I, I also guess I can, I can see now from that perspective as well hmm. that it doesn't, it doesn't immediately seem like there's kind of a combat element to his powers. Whereas... I don't know, Spider-Man, we see a lot of him punching and kicking and swinging and jumping and things, I suppose, in the trailer. Yeah. And and because and, he's so well-known, people know Spider-Man can fight and stuff. Everyone else has been, you know, a guy with a hammer who can shoot lightning, a guy wearing a robot suit that can blow things up, Hulk who could just kill everything. So I guess this is the first one coming along that doesn't really seem combat-orientated, does it? 
It doesn't, but the whole thing is, um, as you'd expect from a superhero who can shrink, it's about infiltration. It's about it's about a little uh, little little uh, little master thief, and that's that's why did, everything did that... about this film f- really fits that that ethos of the character. Well, well, that that that's a great point. Um, as ever, Will hits the nail on the head. It's a great point. We'll we'll, we'll hopefully talk about more of that uh, coming up. Did did you did you get that impression going in then? Did, did it did it have this? Did it convey like a heist movie idea or a thief idea to you to go oh, in, going it, going in like from the trailers and stuff? Or did that only become apparent as you're watching the movie? I think it only became apparent as I'm watching the film. I can't remember the trailers that well. I think my first thought of the trailer yeah. was Paul Rudd, him from yeah, Anchorman, yeah. really. And I and, and yeah, I've got to stop being surprised about castings now. Anytime, like, remember when? Uh, who's who's going to be the new Batman? Edward Vampire Boy, <laughs> Sparkly Vampire Edward, Man. E- Edward Cullen is the name of the character in Twilight. That's oh, okay. Not his real name. It's Robert Pattinson. Robert. Bro- I was going to say Robert Patrick then, but that's a different actor. <laughs> Robert Patrick. T one thousand. T one thousand. Oh yes, indeed. Um, I, I I I was like. I think by that point, I've softened so much. I went, sure, he can be Batman. Because I've been proven wrong about casting so many times. When Daniel Craig was cast as James Bond, I went, he looks nothing like Pierce Brosnan, Roger Moore, Sean Connery, and those other guys. Because they all have a similar thing. And then you just go, oh, he's yeah, actually all yeah. right in it. And it's like, people should stop being surprised. Unless you have some kind of personal or legitimate reason to hate the actor. Like a legitimate reason... Don't be angry about casting choices. There are people <coughs> making this film who know what, well, usually know what they're doing. It's just... Willie P lays down the law for you all out there. Let's, let's be less cynical hmm. about brave casting choices. Marvel, as we've seen, have made some fantastic casting choices yes. um, over the years. And, and, and the same with writing and directing and all sorts. They keep a firm hand, which is something we are about to see. Will, this is one hell of a uh, behind the scenes. You might, you, we might have, we might be doing more. We, we are well. We're definitely doing more about the behind the scenes than we've ever done before. We might even be doing more of that than we are <laughs> history of the character in this episode. Um, I know you've got a lot to tell us, and I'm really, really excited to be pulling this apart. This situation that's gone on for a long time. Um, so I mean, take it away. Perhaps let's start in the way we normally do: facts and figures. Uh, what did this movie cost to make? What are we looking at? Okay, it's not. Uh, it's expensive, but not. Uh, you know, I think around the usual expenses. So, one hundred thirty <coughs> to one hundred sixty-nine point three million dollars. Which is, uh, would we? Say, it's been a while now. Would we say is an average price for a Marvel film? Um. In my mind, they're they're around one seventy to one eight to one ninety, something like that. Yeah, yeah. I think higher budget for obviously if you're doing uh, an Avengers movie because you pay you're just physically paying a lot more top stars, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. The, and yeah, there's, they're, 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 they're bigger. There are bigger kind of uh, effects tend to be. So I would say this is on the modest side. One hundred and thirty million is can't be the number because that's that's a very cheap movie. One hundred and thirty, I think. Hundred and sixty, hundred and seventy sounds sounds like yeah. It's on it's on the it's on the it's on the modest side of a. Uh, it it, it feels it sounds a lot like Phase One. Yeah, you know what I mean? yeah, definitely. Also, this film isn't exactly the most expensive film. 
from from what happens, it's not a grand adventure, but stuff st- stuff does happen. There are some ex- you know impressive scenes, but it's nothing like uh, Captain America: The Winter Soldier, for example. Sure, which will always be the gold standard of MCU films. I think um, you're right in, in in that that we were not we don't see a huge amount of action set pieces. We see a lot of CGI. We we see a lot of CGI action set, set pieces set pieces set entirely CGI inside the uh, micro world. I'll go into more later on when it's relevant about what I loved what they did with the, with the shrinking effects. But uh, um, yeah, what, so on 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 we we'll say like about around 170 million. What do we? What does it walk away from the box office taking, and how does that relate to the rest of Phase Two? Uh, five. We're closing out now. Five hundred and nineteen point three million, which gives it gives it. I think it gives it rights to have a sequel. That's that's to me it's a successful film. But it's not like Iron Man three levels of success or financial success. I should add. Sorry, um, it's it's the it's the it takes the least of any other movie in Phase Two. Yeah. And it's it takes less than a lot of movies in Phase One. Yeah, I think I think it only takes more than two of the movies in total, which are the first Captain America mm. and the first Hulk movie, or the only Hulk movie. I, um, I think, and it didn't yeah. it didn't do as well. I mean, obviously, this is this is as we talked about. This is a character that people have no frame of reference for. Yeah, it also seems um, heavily like a B character because we're we're introducing someone and. The film, as you can tell from the trailers and everything, he he's he's not someone who you who's eventually going to join the Avengers. You don't see that. I mean, what you're seeing here yeah. is just a standard standalone hero, and then you know there's going to be some references to the Avengers and stuff in it. But it's totally the the back is totally on Ant Man's shoulders. It's very strong, capable shoulders to drive this film. Well. <clears throat> then we want to put this podcast on your very big, capable shoulders. Drive this podcast, Will. It, 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 it's a journey. This movie getting made. It is. It's what. <laughs> what. What are you going to tell us? What do we need to know about the twists and the turns and the rug getting pulled out and all of that? Yeah. See, I knew about this. I knew about this. Uh, I'll get onto the bit I knew about because there's a few. Because you know, myself being a fairly touristy geek. Uh, we'll we'll know uh, the one of the big name big well biggish names that was involved. But I'll start with a little bit of the backstory about how long this has been in development for. It's actually been in development for quite a long time. Uh, like development of an Ant Man film of just a Ant Man film began mm. in the late 1980s when Ant Man co-creator wow. Stan Lee pitched the idea to New World Pictures. Do they still exist? Uh, well, they, so New World Pictures used to own Marvel comics, right? Um, I'm thinking back of- in the back in the eighties, but they, they, I don't think they, I don't. I mean, if they, if they do exist, they've been swallowed up by someone else by now. So I was thinking of New Line Cinema because I was like the most nineties, no, no. most nineties film production coming. If you know, it's just New Line Cinema comes up because oh, I'm watching a nineties film. <laughs> you know it. <laughs> but um, Marvel Comics parent company at the time, obviously New World Pictures. Uh, however. Um, that they were they were pitched to them, but Walt Disney Pictures was developing a film based on a similar concept called "Wait for It, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids." <laughs> a classic, an absolute classic. What a classic film! And although Ant Man went into development, nothing came to fruition. Surely, that would have been the time 
to jump on that peak Rick Moranis dollar. (laughs) (laughs) And that film had an ant in. That film had an ant in. Oh, my God. What a perfect companion film. But no, because I mean, remember Hollywood don't take chances. So here's a character that's no proven history, that's a bit quirky and isn't quite, you know, Captain America. It isn't the square jawed matinee idol, um, you know, big big muscled superhero. You're taking a risk, which movies don't like to do, and then you're producing something that is already in a market like it's not unique anymore. So that could be seen as even more of a risk, couldn't it? Yeah, but the the the, the The shrinking film uh, market isn't exactly saturated at that point, really, is it? True, yeah, but but it obviously was was too much too much of a coincidence. And they didn't want to pursue it. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. It's like, hey, people like that Ghostbusters movie. We should make similar films to Ghostbusters. But that didn't happen, did it? No, really? it didn't didn't the the closest so, the closest thing that, that came to it was Men in Black, and that was a decade later. And so that obviously shows that there that there is something in Hollywood that doesn't doesn't quite like to do that. It's all about science fiction. Anything involving sci-fi and comedy mixing together, there's this kind of ooh, it's going to be expensive to make it's sci-fi, and comedy is very hard to do in cinema. And and it doesn't comedy is harder to make big returns on. Very, very I mean, if you watch, uh, I went I went through a, a load of uh, Christopher Guest movies. Uh, yeah, great, 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 funny films. But you look at the return on investment; a lot of them lost money. A few of them lost money. Yeah. It's like, oh, but this is a hilarious film. Why would you do it anyway? I'm straying from the point. Uh, now I'm going to bring us to the bit that really drew me in about Ant Man when I read about it. Uh, it was uh, revealed that in 2003, uh, Edgar Wright and his writing partner Joe Cornish of Adam Adam and Joe Show fame in the UK, people would know him as that. Big up, big up, big up, indeed. Uh, wrote a treatment for artisan uh, movies, which were which were the same same studio that did uh, did the Punisher film. Well, we talked about um, artisan pictures, aren't they? We talked about them in the Punisher movie having this really unique deal mm. with Marvel Comics, yeah, where essentially Marvel. Handed. This is just so weird to think of at the time, mm. but in two thousand and three, around the two thousands, Marvel handed Artisan Pictures the rights to like fifteen of their top characters, yeah, including Thor, and and the deal was this: you you don't pay any money for the rights to these characters, mm. and that is our as in Marvel's financial contribution to these movies and it makes us a partner so you don't have to pay us you can use the characters fund a movie make a movie and we'll get a split of the of the box office and that was the deal that brought us the punisher yep uh and and so ant-man was going to be part of that setup I, I i when i hear about this part of me goes you know what I would have liked to have seen how that would have turned out, just out of curiosity. Out of curi- um, this is the thing, though. I'll just go back quickly to uh, Wright, Wright's uh, take on him when he was get, when he was expl- you know pitching, doing this for Artisan. He, he wanted to revolve obviously around Scott Lang as the burglar, and he can gone uh, gone slightly in a, what he quotes as an Elmore Leonard route. Are you aware of that name? 
Oh yes, Elmwood, Elmwood rendered uh, Leonard wrote the things like um, punch, uh, run punch, and it gets shorty, and uh, out of sight, and all those really fantastic. I think he wrote, uh, yeah, he wrote all those really fantastic punchy, great dialogue. Yeah, um, urban, urban kind of super cool crime movies. Yeah, there we go, and it really shows in the finished product in places. Uh, although they, the artisan, artisan films apparently. Wanted the film to be like a family thing, which makes sense. Yeah, it does because I, I think after you do stuff like The Punisher, you kind of go, "Hmm." <laughs> if, we got- if you're if you're gonna spend a lot of money on effects, you want a big return on investment, mm-hmm. which means kids and families and adults, because that's how you get the most money back. Generally speaking, yeah. So effects uh, movies generally want to be able to appeal to as many people as possible. Exactly. That's why a lot of uh, sequel, recent sequels of old uh, sci-fi and action franchises are no longer yeah. at fifteen and eighteen. They are at PG thirteen and twelve. That's also the China influence, and I don't want to sound like a crazy conspiracy theory guy, but. Yeah, if you want to make money on the global market, you've got to create a movie that doesn't upset China's uh, senses. What? Crazy. As we've discussed before. Yeah, yeah. But but it it is an industry. I don't want want to go, it is what it is. But it is an industry. You are being bankrolled by people who want to see a bigger return on investment than they can. They don't care about art. Art, he says, talking about an MCU film. You don't, you don't care about art. Ah, bah, bah. We, cont- we analyse and contextualise iconic moments of high art <laughs> and pop culture. Uh, I've forgotten. The, uh, yeah, something like that. I, no, I won't have any of this. Come back to me with high art <laughs> when you get an MCU film finally directed by David Lynch. <laughs> Oh my god! What what a box office bomb that will be, but very well received. So 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 then, what happened uh, going forward with with Ant Man? So what happened? Uh, it's April two thousand and six. Uh, Marvel Studios hired uh, Edgar Wright. Uh, I, I, before I say anything further, just 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 to confirm, Edgar Wright, as we know of Shaun of the Dead, uh, the Cornetto trilogy, fame. Uh, more of a and, and of to, spaced fame. Thank of spaced you. fame yes. as well. Yes, yes, and, and all that follows. He's primarily comedy comedy writer so they hired right yes. to direct and co-write ant-man with cornish joe cornish as part of the company's first late independently produced films so what that sounds so that, like that's, that's the a- beginning of marvel studios ah uh, right okay okay so i thought they were going to have like a b film no no B-line. what it means is um independently produced means this is when marvel studios are going to produce movies themselves for the first time instead of Handing the characters to artisan pictures, mm. or selling the rights to Sony yeah. or or Twentieth Century Fox. There we go. There we go. I've got uh, an Entertainment Weekly quote here. No, it's an Edgar Wright quote. Edgar Wright. Oh my God, that was confusing in those. I just saw EW and went. It's obviously Entertainment Weekly. It's really in a, in a section where we're talking about Edgar Wright. <laughs> in a section where we're talking about films. Sure. <laughs> okay. Sorry, Edgar Wright quote, not Entertainment Weekly. God, is my face pink. Um, the idea that we have for the adaptation is to actually involve both uh, Scott Lang and Hank Pym. Is to have the film that basically is about uh, Hank, Hen- so Hank Pym and uh, Scott Lang. So you actually do a prologue where you see Pym as Ant-Man 
in action in the 60s in sort of tales to astonish mode basically and then the contemporary sort of flash forward is scott lang's story and how he becomes uh, comes to acquire the suit how he crosses paths with henry pym and then in an interesting sort of machiavellian way teams up with him so it's like an interesting thing like the marvel premiere one that i read which is scott lang's origin it's very brief uh, like a lot of those origin comics are and in a way the details that skip through in the panels and the kind of thing we'd spend half an hour on so he i don't know how big of a marvel comics fan edgar wright is but i mean he really he he, he sounds like he's like really wants to do the characters justice here yeah i mean and he describes pretty much what we've seen in this movie yeah, i mean it, the, the core the core story is exactly that but i mean yeah i i would i would assume from from space that he's a he's a big fan hmm. um and he's obviously that i mean you don't you also don't necessarily need to be a big fan if you get hired to do a like a a movie like this you, you're probably going to sit down and read a whole whack of the comics oh and gain yeah. a great idea and you suddenly you'll gain knowledge from doing that but you know yeah, it seems like he's a fan. Oh yeah, yeah, but I mean, to do the motivation to actually start getting the kicks off, you must be a huge fan anyway. But I, on yeah, a side, but, uh, no, no, that 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 paycheck is usually a pretty big motivating factor. <laughs> like if you if you pay me to, I mean, I don't have to care about the Marvel character Stingray, the champion of the underwater aquatic adventure and research facility. But if you pay me several thousand pounds to write the movie, I will get motivated like you've never seen, mate. Oh man. I, I, I will say, though, that in Space, Spaced is a great comedy with loads of reference to pop culture and geek culture. I don't remember there being any Marvel uh, references. There's a Captain Marvel reference, but it's the wrong one. It's uh, the DC Fawcett character. Uh, uh, off the top of my head, that's the, only, that's the only comic book one I can think of. Uh, Some 2000 but, AD yeah. references and the fact they had an artist sure. in 2000 AD yeah. work on the comic bits for them. But yeah, I don't remember that. But uh, I'll continue. Uh, with, with, with what happened in June 2012 Wright uh, shot a test reel for Ant-Man showing how he would capture the character's shrinking powers on screen Marvel was actually eyeing Ant-Man as one of its phase 2 movies but allowed Wright to delay production so he could instead make his original sci-fi film The World's End first this was because Eric Fellner, producer for the working title, the studio behind Wright's Cornetto trilogy of films, was diagnosed with cancer. And Wright felt it important to fill his promise of a trilogy of movies to Fellner, lest the producer's condition worsened. That's I, I didn't know about that. Didn't no, no, no. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. So, Wright showed off the Ant-Man test reel during the Marvel panel at 2012 San Diego Comic Con, a month after he shot it, which ended up being the only footage Wright ever shot for Ant Man that was seen by the public. Loads has been loads. Yeah. Loads of people talk about that. Loads of people that were there. There was lots of lots of writing done on blogs and websites mm. at the time, and some stuff on social media about seeing that test footage. Did you ever and see it? Became, it? I don't think I have actually. No, mm. no. I I would imagine it's it's it, it's a little tricky to track down online, um, mm. but I haven't attempted to. So yeah, I'm really tempted to because I I want to see how that how that came out because when I heard that Edgar Wright was writing it, <clears> all <throat> I can imagine was how would Shaw the Dead look style you know comedy and action look like in a Marvel film, and plus it's American, so I th- I thought there would be a lot of lost 
like because the great thing about those Cornetto trilogy films is the humor is very quick and it relies on the on British slang and and mentality and they're like could you transfer his kind of writing to a Marvel film I thought um I yeah I think he could yeah I I don't I don't think it relies very that much on a British mentality I think that's just that the re- a lot of the references mm. and a lot of the way the jokes are written are in an, an English language, but I still think you can. The timing was anyway. We're getting off, top, off topic here. Yeah. Um, if if we are head over to our Patreon right now, mm. and if we are able to source the video, we will put it up there for everyone to see. Uh, Patreon dot com slash Marvel versus Marvel. If we can find that test footage, we'll share it with you all on the website. If you go there and it's not there, we couldn't find it. Yeah, I I gonna have a hunt hunt for it after we record this. So the lead roles uh, in the movie were all cast with Edgar's vision. Uh, Edgar favoured Paul Rudd over Marvel's preferred choice of Joseph Gordon Levitt. Oh, really? Yeah, that, that would have been yeah. in oh, 2015. Uh, JGL as well. So that's a very different. <laughs> that's a very different physical look. That's a very different. Like he's still he's he's still looking quite young and very very nerdy. JGL, um, I like that. I like that. That's that's interesting. I I I I think uh, Rudd's the right way to go with this character. But, I think Rudd has a bit more uh, mileage on his face. Oh yeah, definitely. definitely. That's the interesting thing about the Marvel the Marvel cast is the so many of them are in their are in their 40s and 50s yeah. it's a really aged cast you know you think if you're going to start a, a hot new franchise of movies everyone would be like late 20s but um that's not quite the case no no i i, I like that whole maxim about hey here's an example of a guy who st- changed their life in their 40s became famous for it and it's like oh my god they're a famous actor they just or whatever or it's like hey it's never too late to change things and i like that absolutely yeah. Yeah. So, with filming due to get underway in July 2014, tensions began to arise between Wright and Marvel. Throughout early 2014, Wright and Cornish wrote two additional drafts of the Ant-Man script, attempting to address Marvel's notes without compromising their vision. Marvel even pushed the start of filming back from June to July to make time for the rewrites. And when the script still wasn't to Marvel's liking, the studio commissioned a rewrite from some of its own in-house writers without Wright's input. It was then that it was when that draft of the script came back, reportedly lacking Wright's voice and entirely homogenized, that Wright decided to leave the film just two months before filming was due to begin. That's insane. Yeah, that's that is X-Men um three level madness what happened with that did um what's his face they 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 lost two directors during the movie that movie has three directors and production didn't stop once it just kept going as they brought in a different guy and then a different guy and then a third guy like which which is and that's reflected in that terrible movie, X Men Trinity. Oh yeah, X Men Trinity. No, um, last what's it stand. called? X Men. You're thinking whatever, of Blade Trinity. Yeah. It's like yeah, you, both, you, you both terrible to... third installments. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they are very terrible. Apparently, uh, Josh Whedon was very disappointed, calling the uh, right corner script the best Marvel have ever had. 
That's really interesting. Yeah. That he because he's presumably seen it. He's presumably seen all of them. So because he was very so he was so involved in phase one, so involved. That's quite heartbreaking, isn't it? Yeah, There's something and really heartbreaking as well. Sorry, it, sorry. I was just saying. Um, I was correcting myself and saying. Joss was so involved in Phase One and Two mm. of Marvel because they both built up to you know his kind of his kind of Avengers movies bookmarked both of those big 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 phases. So yeah. he would have presumably seen every script, and for it to have been the best one, yeah, that's uh, that's really I I I, I don't want to go on about it, but it, is, it just makes you go. I really want to see this. I really want to know what the difference was because. Oh, I don't know. I, I like the Kudato trilogy. I like Edgar Wright's work. Not wasn't so keen on uh, Scott Pilgrim, to be honest. But that's another thing. And I just uh, Scott Pilgrim's. A, I I have a huge. I think Scott Pilgrim's an incredible film. I think the World's End is very bland and a bit dodgy, a bit bit rough. It's certainly the weaker of the trilogy. But I I, yeah. I think people were a bit unfair on it. <laughs> I think there is some goodness in there. Mm. It's just like it, it's the it, you can tell that the ideas are running thin by by that point. Yeah, maybe. But anyway, yeah. Uh, Josh Whedon said, uh, "I thought the script was not only the best script that Marvel ever had, but the most Marvel script I'd read." I had no interest in Ant Man. Then I read the script and was like, "Of course, this is so good." It reminded me of the comics when I read them, irreverent and funny and could make what was small large and vice versa I don't know where things went wrong but I was very sad because I thought this is a no brainer this is Marvel getting it exactly right which is odd because Marvel usually got it exactly right didn't they we've talked about this so much about about getting the right director getting the right cast they, you, they've been getting it right with the MCU so many times uh, yeah um, I, 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 look, we, we might, I might have more to say at the end of all this. Let, let's progress with the story because I, I think I, I have, I have my thoughts on what happened. I like this. You're going to keep people listening in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're, we're going to stay tuned. So anyway, progressing with the story of the making of Batman on May 23rd, 2014, Marvel and Wright jointly announced that Wright was leaving the project due to differences in their vision of the film and that the studio was closing in on a new director. On the split, Wright said, I wanted to make a Marvel movie, but I don't think they really wanted to make an Edgar Wright movie. That makes a lot of sense to me. He also added that at one point, Marvel wanted to do a draft of the script without him, which was a tough thing to move forward, as Wright had written all of the previous films he directed. So Marvel also wanted no halt in production, so Adam McKay replaced Wright to finish the script with Rudd chipping in. Adam McKay, as you know, um, is the director and writer of Anchorman and The Big Short and Vice. He's a guy who knows comedy and knows how to direct comedy. So if, if Wright's leaving, I think that was a very good choice. I think that was a good choice to replace. I, I, yeah, well, it certainly, certainly paid off very well, didn't it? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you can certainly see, see, it worked. Uh, McKay said of the process, I've always known Paul Rudd's really a really good writer from improvising with him on set, but I had no idea he was that good. He's really great with dialogue. The two of us holed up in hotel rooms on the east and west coast, and I think it was like six to eight weeks. We just ground it out and did a giant rewrite of the script. I was really proud of what we did. 
I really thought we'd put some amazing stuff in there and built on an already strong script from Edgar Wright and sort of just enhance some stuff. Rudd has, wow. Yeah. Rudd has gone out of his way uh, to give credit to Wright and Cornish for the script, saying the idea, the trajectory, the goal, and the blueprint of all of it is really Edgar and Joe. It's their story. We changed some scenes. We added some new sequences. We changed some characters. We added new characters. If you look, if you took the two scripts and held them up together, they'd be very different, but the idea is all theirs. That's nice. I like that. I like they're giving credit where credit's due, considering they did the most of the legwork, obviously. Uh, yeah, it, 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 uh, yes. In in the world of rainbows and unicorns <laughs> and Care Bears, it's really nice that they have magnanimously gone out of their way to, to do that. Uh, in, in the world <laughs> of business, it's a, also a great way of saving face with a geek and nerd community who are your core yeah. demographic with an incredibly popular director in that, in that kind of world and fan base. Um, yeah. Yeah. There's also, I imagine some legal paper somewhere from <laughs> the end of Edgar Wright's work with them where both side agree not to disparage the other and, mm. There might even be something. I mean, to be fair, I don't think he's credited on the movie at all, so there probably isn't that going on. That's but, a shame. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, yeah, <laughs> let's let let's let's say it's because everyone involved in Marvel and Disney is lovely. Let's let's go with that because Disney's lovely that. and has never done anything bad whatsoever. Evangeline yeah. Lilly actually considered leading the movie. First of all. Oh. <sighs> Evangeline Lilly. Yeah, who's, what happened? Who's, who's Evangeline Lilly? What do you mean? I just got, I decide with you because I thought you were going to do something else. Well, she's no, she's Hope in the movie. Oh, yeah, she's she's very she's nice. She's the actress who plays Hope, and she's also Kate from Lost. And, uh, uh, I should put that on my list of shows stuff. to watch. Uh, yes, Evangeline Lilly actually considered leading the movie uh, due to the exit of Edgar Wright. She said, "When the split happened, I was in the fortunate position where I had not signed my contract yet, so I had the choice to walk away, and I almost did." Because I Oof. thought, yeah, because I thought, well, if it's not, if it's, if it's because Marvel are big bullies and they just want a puppet and not someone with a vision, I'm not interested in being in this movie, which, which is what I was afraid of. I saw with my own eyes that Marvel had just pulled the script into their world. I mean, they, were an establ- they established a universe and everyone has come to expect a certain aesthetic and a certain feel for Marvel films. And what Edgar was creating was much more in the Edgar Wright camp of films. They were very different. And I totally understand that. I totally understand uh, that that viewpoint. That Edgar Wright films are different from Marvel films. So, what do you think happened here then? Oh, have you got your theories that you're going to tell us at the end? I take it. Yeah, I think yeah. so. Yeah. I, 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 my, from what I read, I was doing a bit of research. I, I think that I had Edgar Wright want to make this a standalone film. He wanted to make this a standalone film, and I, I just think he wanted full creative control over it. But unfortunately, he was uh, handling a um, commodity that was under a much bigger, in a much bigger picture. So 
although he you know there's that thing of okay do what you can with it but it has to he has to do this and we have to do this it has to he has to basically go by the rule book of what's happened and what's about to happen with the mcu phases and everything because at some point we're going to introduce we obviously will introduce ant-man into everything so we need a way of doing that and i i think edgar wright was totally against that he wanted it a standalone thing I think there's there's probably elements of that, yeah. I I think um, because I I think this is the strongest idea. Hmm. I think that um, he very much wanted Hank Pym to be some sort of 1950s 1960s period based character because uh, I really think that's the strong. I I believe that is the strongest and coolest and funnest idea that you cool. shoot the Hank Pym stuff as a 1950s uh, Roadhouse B movie. And then you go modern day, and then do the rest of the movie. So I, I can see that being something. Whereas I can see Marvel saying, "Well, no, because we're going to get. We want Hank Pym to be a character we do stuff with. We want it to be connected to Shields. Mm-hmm. We. I can. I can see elements of that. I, I think Evangeline Lilly's quote is deeply important. Um, Marvel has a certain aesthetic. Yeah. Edgar Wright um, composes shots. If, if, if Scott Pilgrim is, an, is, a, is, a, is a fantastic example of that, as is probably Hot Fuzz. Yeah, he composes shots with a a, a real eye and flair for cinematography, yeah. for spacing and for uh, composure, uh, uh, composition. Mm. Sorry, of of the shot. And Marvel films are not filmed like that. Marvel films are shot with. Insane amounts of coverage. You two pe- two characters are talking. You film it from every single. You film it again and again and again and again from every yeah. possible direction. You move the camera to every possible spot in that room, and you have six hundred takes of that conversation, so that in the edit you can you can make Marvel movies can be entirely remade in the edit to fit whatever they want to do. Yep. And Edgar Wright is not that kind of a filmmaker. And I can imagine Edgar Wright scripting a lot of things, um, a lot of stylistic shots, like you see in very much in Spaced and yep. more in, oh, in Shauna than Hot Fuzz, those stylistic um, that have the Edgar Wright stamp on them. Yeah, I know exactly I see, the ones you mean. And I mean, I mean, Scott Pilgrim has faced criticism of being style over substance because there's so much style in it. It's such a stylistic film. I don't think Marvel want that would jar. Yeah, in a in in the rest of the MCU movies. I think it comes from a very logical perspective. Uh, I know you have a, so, uh, academia in film studies. I have a, I probably have less than you, but some academia uh, in film studies. And the key is uh, with Marvel films, a lot of action films is pacing of editing and i think they film so much of that so in a in a scene where they're doing a conversation instead of like just having it like edgar wright might have done where it's just simple shots they wanted to do a a take to a new camera angle move the camera take uh, cut to a new camera angle every couple of seconds so everybody watching isn't being bored i i I know what you mean i I know what you mean i i don't feel that mcu films work do do that very often um because i find i find that to be a very that jars me whenever i see it and i don't get that from mcu movies perhaps i'm just in a better mood when i watch them but i i know what you mean i think i think in general i think it's a complete clash of styles to go behind the page with this character will to take you 
and the listeners uh, into the, the history of Ant-Man. As we see in the movie, the very first Ant-Man is, is Hank Pym, genius scientist who is able to shrink himself down to the size of an insect. 1960s character Hank Pym never intended to be a superhero. That was never the intent behind the creation of that character. Um, Stan Lee, his brother Larry Lieber, who did a lot of writing with him, and Jack Kirby, um, created the story at the end of 1961. They've they've just created the Fantastic Four. This is the early, early, early days of what we call the Marvel Age, where all these characters are being created one month after the other. We don't have any costume superheroes yet. Okay, mm. we've got mad sci-fi stories at this point. <laughs> sixty-one, end of sixty-one, start of sixty-two. We, we, the Fantastic Four don't wear costumes to begin with. They are, you know, scientists and adventurers. We've got the Hulk coming soon. Um, mad science fiction is 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 what Marvel have been doing during the nineteen fifties, along with cowboys and gangsters and and romance co- comics. Atlas, as Marvel was known in in the 50s, was producing a lot of mad scientists, um, sci-fi anthology uh, comic books, which would feature tales about monsters, aliens, and mad scientists. Um, One of those anthology books is called Tales to Astonish, which publishes like unconnected science fiction short stories. No shared universe, no shared world. It's like... uh, Two or three short short stories that might last five pages to ten, maybe. In in nineteen sixty two, one of these short stories is called "The Man in the Ant Hill," and this is the first appearance of, of Hank Pym. This is not a superhero, not a superhero debut. There's no costume. There's no fighting crime. It's like one of those Black Mirror stories that I've been talking about <laughs> since we started the, the, this this tale mm. to a certain extent. Uh, Hank Pym discovers an unusual set of subatomic particles he labels the Pym particles, right? Mm. And and he makes these serums that can alter his size, and 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 he, so he's got one formula that, that that can change his size and one to turn him back. He tests them on himself. And he shrinks himself down to the size of an insect, and that's where he has this this horrifying adventure. Really, he becomes trapped in an ant hill, uh, running from his life as terrifying ants that are bigger than him, giants to him, are about to like rip him apart and eat him. And he eventually escapes and, and uses a reverse formula to restore himself to a normal style size, but. He, at the end of the, of, the, of the story, decides this is too dangerous to exist, pulls him down the sink, and that's the end. That was always meant to be the end. It was a short little bish-bash-bosh done. It's clear that, you know, we talked at the, at the top of the show about how uh, movies like Honey, I Shrunk the Kid and, and things like that influenced public consciousness in 2015 about you know being be, being shrunk being being small and that being a comedic thing hmm. what well, it, it's very clear that this story is heavily influenced by popular movies of the era okay so the special effects used in movies like Gulliver's Travels and like Tom Thumb d- displayed that 
you could have a lot of inventive fun with a miniature hero stood next to a giant pencil, a giant whatever it might be, insect. Um, but but more importantly, the 1957 sci-fi movie, The Incredible Shrinking Man. Yes, yes. That showed how everyday things like cats and insects would become terrifying monsters to a tiny protagonist, you know? Not to mention that the 50s is the era of the sci-fi uh, big horror classics like Them, Mm. which is about irradiated giant ants terrorising <laughs> yeah. a desert town and the military have to, you know, they try and blow them up with tanks and with fighter jets and it's, you know, proper full-on uh, B-movie horror, scary stuff. Um, and the Deadly Mantis, you know, so another one about, uh, you know, household insects grown to giant size and how scary that is and how threatening it is. Um, sidebar here, folks... Uh, it's worth pointing out that as with a lot of Marvel's history around this time, DC Comics did it first. Oh my. 1961, DC Comics published a story featuring a genius scientist, Ray Palmer, who discovers a way to shrink himself down to tiny sizes. And he eventually, after having his own experience with, you know, suddenly being tiny when, uh, uh, you know, being stuck in a bottle, a Coke bottle when he's tiny and all that kind of stuff, he eventually dons a costume and fights evil as the Atom, which is a perennial DC comic book character, perennial member of the Justice League, Silver Age character, and and, and still is a character used in their their TV shows. he's, He's... just left Legends of Tomorrow after, you know, six seasons or whatever. As 1962 progresses, we see the success of the the costume superheroes, like Spider-Man. Um, and the the fans demanded the Fantastic Four wear costumes and become superheroes. So Stan Lee and, and, and Marvel are looking for more costumed characters. And the Hank Pym story sold pretty well. That had... A, you know, good, good, uh, good feedback from fans about the man in the anthill. So Stanley decides to bring the Hank Pym character back as a costume superhero who uses, you know, the fact that he can shrink down as a way to fight evil. And he also invents this awesome-looking chrome helmet, which lets him communicate and control insects, so he can never. That can never happen to him again. The next time he's tiny, <laughs> he's not going to get eaten by them because otherwise, that's it's just a very dangerous thing to do to yourself and not a good way of fighting crime. Um, by '63, uh, Hank Pym's got his own series, Ant Man in Tales of Astonish. Um, he gives size changing powers to his girlfriend, who becomes the Wasp, and together they join the Avengers. And and this is an important thing that I think everyone needs to. Um, perhaps learn from this episode never work with your girlfriend it's a terrible (laughs) idea never bring her into your workplace never join her workplace Mm. if you get the chance to join the Avengers check to see if your girlfriend is already there or boyfriend whatever it is just don't work with your spouse but the Ant-Man stories uh, never sell very well his ongoing adventures stop and Hank Pym begins a period of of rapid change. (laughs) So by by the end of 63, Hank Pym 
is no longer Ant-Man. He's ditched that identity. And he's changed his powers. Now, he is Giant-Man. Ah. And he grows to be a giant rather than shrinks to become an Ant-Man. And then he changed his name and costume again and become Goliath. Um, and these were inspired by other sci-fi movies of the 50s, like The Amazing Colossal Man mm. and The Attack of the 50-Foot Woman. So Hank Pym is very much inspired by these popular 50s sci-fi kind of roadhouse, drive-in, B-movies. And by the end of the 60s, Pym has adopted four different superhero identities and four different superhero costumes, all while serving um, on, on the Avengers. Uh, one, He's one of the earliest Marvel heroes, uh, a founding member of the Avengers and all of that. And yet, if you ask a, a comic book fan what Hank Pym is most known for, they will all say his darkest moments. They'll all say uh, creating Ultron. Mm, yes. They'll all say the time he got fired from the Avengers. <laughs> what? Uh, his, his numerous mental breakdowns. Oh. And the time he hit his wife. Oh. Because that has never left. That, that scar... He has worn his whole life. So, for whatever reason, those are the big things that stuck with, with, with that character. Now, Scott Lang is a different story. Um, so, created in 79 by David Michelani, Bob Layton, and John Byrne. Okay, Michelani was a real force for modern, grown-up storytelling at Marvel in the 70s. And beyond in the 80s, he co-created both Venom and, and Carnage when he was working on Spider-Man in the 90s. His work with uh, Bob Layton on Iron Man really transformed that character. They created Rhodey, they created Justin Hammer, um, and they created two of the most iconic and uh, Iron Man stories of all time. Demon in a Bottle, which we've mentioned, where Tony yep. Stark is battling alcoholism, which has stayed with the character forever. And Armor Wars, where Tony goes on a rampage and he basically stops being a hero and attacks every armoured character in, in Marvel. Um, those are two of the really super big Iron Man stories. Uh, Michelani loved size-changing heroes. Um, and so like the fact that Hank Pym wasn't being Ant-Man anymore and he was just being Hank Pym at the time, I think... Mm. Um, meant that he was like oh like that that character i don't want that identity to go away so he decided to create a brand new updated version of, of the hero and uh michelani michelani said uh, in interviews i wanted something completely different in both origin and motivation from hank pym so i came up with the idea of a reformed criminal like not an unjustly accused innocent man which is a trope, which would have been the expected angle, a true criminal who had reformed. And I right. figured that as a burglar, this person probably enjoyed the adrenaline rush of his previous job. So the excitement of heroic adventure could fulfill that need in him, but legally. So uh, Ant-Man had a, had a two-issue tryout in, in, in uh, Marvel premiere, um, Scott Lang as Ant-Man. It failed to get him his own series. 
But the dynamic of, of a single father, reformed criminal in the superhero role, did strike a chord with characters to a certain degree, and it led to Ant-Man enjoying modest popularity and, and more appearances he made a lot of guest appearances. He aided the Avengers but didn't join the team. He aided Iron Man and Alpha Flight and Hercules. And basically, whenever like a, a superhero story needed someone to do something tiny, like <laughs> Scott Lang would turn up and, and that would be his guest appearance and he'd help them out. Um, he appeared as kind of like a forgotten... He was, he was he was known for a while as like the forgotten hero, right? So he, he turns up in the Marvel Max series, Alias, as a boyfriend of Jessica Jones. And it's kind of like, oh yeah, I, I used to be a superhero or I did it for a bit, but, you know, the hours were rough <laughs> <laughs> while I was trying to look after my kid and... It wasn't until 20 years after he was created that he'd actually join the Avengers. Uh, but right as <laughs> right as he joins the Avengers, they suffer a sequence of horrific events in a storyline called Avengers Disassembled, which tears the team apart, and Scott Lang dies in the process of that. Um, but his his death doesn't stick, and five years later, thanks to some time travel, Scott is back in action, and he's more prominent than ever. He joins the new team of Defenders, and then he's asked to replace Reed Richards and form a new temporary version of the Fantastic Four in a, a comic book series that I really, really recommend. That's Will Eating, if you're distracted on the uh, on the podcast. He's uh, been working hard, and he's not had chance to have his num-nums. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, he, Scott gets an ongoing uh, series focused on, on, on Lang, uh, titled Ant-Man, written by Nick Spencer, and drawn by Raymond Rosanos, and that's really great series, and, and he gets some others. When... Uh, his daughter Cassie becomes seriously ill. Um, we, we... oh, my notes are all kind of messed up now. What are we doing? Right, okay. <laughs> this is fun. Uh, live action uh, retake on this. Okay, folks. Right. So, so unlike like Hank Pym's origin of inventing the serum, mm. Scott Lang doesn't have that. What we see is something a bit similar to the movie, but not quite. So. Um, Scott Lang's daughter Cassie is seriously ill and he seeks out the only doctor that's capable of helping her unique heart condition Dr. Erica Sondheim and at the, at the very moment Scott Lang is trying to contact her like he sees her being kidnapped basically oh. um, and taken away to uh, to this, this other facility that he, and he, he follows her but he can't like he's like looking he's like I'd have to break in, and I'm not supposed to do that anymore. <laughs> um, and you know, I, I, oh, I, 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 and also, aside from anything else, the technology and the security here is way beyond anything I could do as a burglar. So, okay, forget this. I've got to do something else. So he goes, returns to burglary to try and like get enough money together to take his daughter abroad and maybe find another doctor that can help her heart condition. And lo and behold, the house he goes to rob is Hank Pym's house. Ah. And what he steals is the Ant-Man suit. Now, being that this is Marvel and Ant-Man is a very famous Avenger and superhero, he immediately knows what he's stolen. 
And so he, not like in the movie where it's like, what's this? So he he, he becomes the new Ant-Man, uses the size powers to, um, to, to rescue Dr. Sondheim and, uh, and, and, and helps gets, gets his daughter saved, gets her heart condition sorted. And Hank Pym watches the whole event and then basically says, you should, you should be the new Ant-Man. Go and, go and be the new Ant-Man. Go and, um, I know that you only did this to, uh, to try and save your daughter. So as long as you don't steal things anymore, take the suit, become the new Ant-Man. And, uh, and that is Scott Pym's, and Scott Pym. <laughs> what? Scott uh, Pym. Okay, that is Scott Lang's backstory yeah. with Hank Pym. Man, too many of these. Uh, too many names that don't make sense on this show. Too many names that have clearly been made up out of nowhere. <laughs> so, we have a few letters in the mailbag. Uh, James Greenwood got in touch and said, This is the episode I've been waiting for. So go yes. And, yes, exactly. That's what we like to hear. We like to hear, oh, I, I didn't come along just to listen to you guys. I've been actively salivating at the idea of you talking about this film. So <laughs> going in, I had no idea, really. But the trailer looked great. It was being done by the guy who made Shaun the Dead and Hot Fuzz, which I love. And I think Paul Rudd is brilliant. I was completely enamored with the film. And Ant-Man shot to the top of my list of faves. Because of it, I've now got loads of Ant-Man merch and got ridiculously excited in Endgame when they redacted Confidential. Yeah, he, I, I, I like it when they redact. I like it when they redact their own posts about spoilers. They didn't. They didn't, mate. That was me. Oh, good, good. Uh, yeah. very, well done on that. Uh, amazing that we're still uh, doing spoiler alerts on Endgame after it's been nearly two years since it came out. We have three. Regular listeners who we love that are going through oh, yes. the they're going through the MCU for the first time now on Disney Plus <laughs> and listening to us as they go along. So I don't think we can always avoid every spoiler, but wherever we can take the time to do it, I I want to make sure that we are. No, no, you're absolutely right. There, I'm just thinking, wow, they are. It's it's like it's like when I've watched The Wire the first time, and so many people were just like, I'm so jealous of you right now. You're in for yeah. a, you're in for a ride. You're in for and with with the uh, phase three, you're in for a ride. <laughs> there there are some people that have used the hypnotist to try and remove all their memories of the Harry reading the Harry Potter books so they can experience them for the first time. That's crazy. Or is it brilliant? No, no. Okay, it's no. crazy. I, I, I'm going to go a crazy angle because you can appreciate so, thing, reading, rereading, rewatching things again in a different way. Anyway, what else? What else does James say? What else, does James? Say? Uh, well, that's it. Oh, you well, redacted you quite touch, a lot. That's true. Yeah, you redacted everything. You you, you threw yeah. the baby out with the bath water and the bath out of the window. That's what you did. <laughs> we got the important bit from him. He loves us. He thinks we're great. He's excited about this episode. Yes, in future, all uh, letters will be redacted, just the bits that say how great we are. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> next up, we have Alex Palmer, who wrote in to say, I had very little knowledge of Ant-Man going into this movie. I was sceptical, to say the least. Marvel's track record was obviously great, but the departure of Edgar Wright was a big letdown, especially considering the concept footage that had already been leaked. 
I didn't understand how they could replace him with the director of Bring It On, which in hindsight is stupid. <laughs> I know, I don't, I haven't seen Bring It On. What is Bring It On? Is it a dance movie? It's a cheerleader dance movie. Oh. Well, it's, no, it's not a it's a cheer. It's that cheerleader movie. That's the one. From the 90s with, um, gosh, I'm trying to think who's in it. Is it Kirsten Dunst? I think it's Kirsten Dunst and Faith from Buffy, whatever her I, real name is. Uh, is it Alison Hannigan? No, that's Willow. That's Willow. Faith, anyway. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, what was I going to say? What was, where was I? Uh, which in hindsight was stupid since uh, Winter Soldier, Infinity War, Endgame are from the directors of You, Me and Dupree. <laughs> What's that one? What's You, Me and Dupree? I can't keep doing this, Will. We haven't got time. If you we don't know a film... We'll just move on. Okay, I don't know that film. <laughs> but I was very happy to be wrong. The action, the humour, the fantastic casting of people like Bobby Canaveral and Michael Pena in the roles. Is that, is that correct, Michael Pena? Oh, gosh, put me on the spot here. That's how I would say it in my head. Yeah, probably, I, probably not. No, it's probably not a correct pronunciation of the man's wonderful, beautiful name. Uh, yeah, I'm just going to know Michael Carry Pena. Carry on, I'll Google it. Pena. Uh, in the supporting roles, were all spot on. Up there as one of my favourites now. I wasn't expecting everybody to uh, quite, quite, quite a lot of positivity with this one. I was expecting it like, ah, it's a bit of fun, wasn't it? Not, oh my god, it's one of my favourites. Uh, Thomas Evans had a great point of view though. He wrote in to say it's definitely a little jarring at first, but as soon as you see him with the other Avengers, he serves a great purpose in the films as a sort of can-you-believe-this-is-all-happening kind of character, a la Tim slash Jim from The Office. He's probably the closest main Marvel films have come to breaking the fourth wall without the addition of Deadpool. That's interesting. That's an interesting point of view, actually, because he's not really breaking the fourth wall, but he is serving, narratively speaking, as our view into it, because everything looks crazy to him. And it should do to us watching this film. His big, in, his big info dumps. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I, I like that. So, yeah, I like that. Uh, Pena, Pena, Pena. Michael Pena, Pena. Cool. So yeah, not a hard no. Uh, is that everything from the mailbag? The mailbag has been redacted, completed, and read. Well, it's a great way for you to get in touch with us. Um, you can drop us an email, marvel versus marvel at gmail.com. We want to hear from you. What do you think of our episodes? What do you think of the movies? Are you excited about the ones that are still to come? What do you want us to look at? What do you want us to pull apart? What's been your favourite bit of Marvel trivia that you've learned? The wildest stories? Have you started your own comic book reading journey because of us? Which is something we hear a lot of on Twitter, which is super Super cool. You can um, get in touch with us, um, as we said, via uh, email, marvel versus marvel at gmail.com, or you can drop us a tweet if you've got not so much to say by sending us a tweet, a little twit, to <laughs> at marvel versus. Um, and that is something that people have been doing, which we're, re we're always really excited about. We get more and more people finding us on, on Twitter. And that's a great way to learn updates and things like, oh, hey, guys, we're delaying a week because of this. Or, you know, don't forget we're doing this episode next, which is really important. So we get tons of the, um, tons of the announcements come out through at 
Marvel versus on Twitter, um, and we really appreciate all the love that you guys send us um, through uh, through all of those different means as well. The best way, of course, to get in touch with us is by uh, joining us on Patreon. A great way for you to, I mean, get in touch, to share love with us, to share your thoughts and everything to us. But it's also a great way to uh, get the absolute best out of Marvel versus marvel because that's where we put everything that we do and even more uh we've had uh, king canuck join us on uh, on on marvel on, on patreon sorry very recently and he's been blasting his way through on mini bonus episodes now <laughs> let me talk to you folks about how it works on patreon our Patreon is bursting with cool things that you can uh, you can indulge and join. Our basic our basic basic tier, which comes in at three pounds, that's how you show your love. It's how you tip your boys. Um, it's how you let us all know uh, that, that that you're out there, you care, you love us, and you are willing to keep us on the air, help us pay the bills. Because it's nothing but bills when you run a podcast like this. We've got the hosting fees, the storage fees, uh, we've got equipment fees. We've got to pay for them jingles, um, yep. and that all costs cheddar, 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 um, and uh, and things like uh, Patreon and other ways that you can help. That three pound tier, in exchange for that, or oh, no, not in exchange for that, because you just give us the money because you know you should. It's the right thing to do. Um, you're keeping us on the air, but as a bonus thank you you get a whole bunch of mini bonus episodes up on there we are talking all the most useless x-men uh going around uh we've got an episode where we delve into all the different people that have been captain america over the years mm. we delve into the insane 1990s spider-man clone saga which is a trip through Marvel corporates and also through the the storyline as well. Um, there's just tons of, of great fun episodes out there. King Canuck has been blasting his way through the mini bonus episodes on Patreon. And he, he says, uh, I've been working my way through the... Well, he says what I just said. He's, I've been working my way through the bonus episodes. Part of me wishes that Forget Me Not came up in the crappy X-Men episode. But he's quite useful even though his power kind of sucks for the sake of his personal life. Forget Me Not is an, uh, a mutant character in the X-Men who has a, a power that makes people forget who he is, forget him completely when they're not looking at him. Uh, and he is not featured as one of the worst characters. And I'll tell you for why. I have a lot of, like, as I say in the episode, a lot of disclaimers for what does constitute and what does not constitute. I'm I'm looking in that episode for genuinely terrible ideas that became X-Men or <laughs> mutants, right? Forget Me Not is a postmodern, it'd be funny if this was his power. Mm. Well, sure, you might as well create the, the X-Man whose eyeballs shoot out ice cream. We can all <laughs> just do a silly thing for the sake of being silly, but, you know, Unus the Untouchable is a genuine attempt by Stanley and Jack Kirby to make a compelling, powered character. And it's insane. So that's what I want to go for. Forget me not, I understand that, but the whole point of that character is it'd be funny if this happened. So I didn't, didn't count it. King Canick also says, I really enjoyed the episodes on the Spider-Man clone saga and the many captains of America. But I was curious, 
why not talk about Bucky and Sam Wilson, Falcon, as Captain America in that episode? Is that a post-end game plan? Um, you are partly right, yeah. Um, I n- knew that that was going to come up in future episodes. That's plot points that we want to discuss. So I didn't put them in. I also don't think it's as... Sub- to me, growing up as a kid, I found it surprising, shocking... Ne- yeah, shocking to read in copies of the Marvel, the official Marvel uh, handbook to the Marvel Universe, or the guide to the Marvel Universe, that once Steve Rogers is presumed dead, there's like a whole bunch of other Captain Americas that happen between him supposedly dying in the Second World War and then turning out to be alive and joining the Avengers. That's the really uh, interesting bit. And then there's the more interesting kind of bit where he quits and stops being Captain America and they have to bring in a replacement. The other very, very modern stuff to me only happened in my mind in very recent memory. So we didn't want to cover that. And and we are going to be talking about it as the uh, the MCU timeline progresses. Um, so those are some of the bonus episodes that are up there. But it's not just bonus episodes, Will. Oh, no. We're chock full of big, thick, meaty, <laughs> girthy content. Um, we, we we cover the insane cosmic wars, the annihilation wars that ripped the Marvel Universe apart and directly lead us into the creation of the modern Guardians of the Galaxy that the movies are based on. We we spend a whole episode talking about the 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 war the the, the war between uh, the Annihilation Wave and the rest of the Marvel Universe. Um, we talk about Thanos living and dying. We talk about the transformation of Drax the Destroyer from. A super goofy, weird character with a cape into the modern Drax you see in the movies. We talk about Nova, um, an insanely fantastic, you know, and well thought of Marvel cosmic character that's pretty much left out of the movies entirely, and the role that he plays. We talk about the different Guardians of the Galaxy and where they come from. Uh, that's a that's, that was our first episode. There's tons in that. We talk about. Um, spin off from the Doctor Octopus Spider-Man 2 and we talk about the superior Spider-Man the time when Doctor Octopus became Spider-Man for several years like five years <laughs> and, uh, and that's a, a fantastic episode and um, one that we've just put up one that we put up there uh, this week in January the bonus episode full length bonus episode covers the age of apocalypse Ooh, one of yes. the Best Marvel events, most fondly remembered, best executed, best conceived, most ambitious. Um, it's about parallel, sort of, parallel universes, maybe. Uh, a world where Apocalypse rules the Marvel Universe took place in the 90s. And we also use it as a way of charting the the rise of Marvel Comics, the boom period of those those big popular superhero comics in the late 80s and the 90s. And the absolute fall of Marvel Comics as they slide into bankruptcy through the actions and decisions of incompetent management that that tear the company apart and end the superhero boom of the 90s completely. Uh, it's, it's our best episode yet. There's no doubt in my mind. It's our best episode yet. Yeah, yeah, and I really it, enjoyed that one. And, and it's only available on Patreon, patreon.com slash marvel. 
versus Marvel. Fuzzy Dunlop the third wrote to us about that episode. He's been with us since day one. Um and uh Fuzzy Dunlop the third says, I've been subscribing since the first month, and the Age of Apocalypse episode is easily the best bonus app yet. Yes. I love <laughs> how you guys go extra deep into the comic book stories on Patreon, and I've been looking forward to this one for so long. I have fond memories of this event from the 90s, but I haven't read any of the stories in 25 years. Hearing about X-Man, Weapon X, Magneto, Rogue, Blink, Morph, it made me feel like a kid again, and it was so awesome to have the whole huge event laid out in one sitting, including all the Legion stuff. That's right, we take our first look at Legion, um, the uh, the child of Professor Charles Xavier, and you guys didn't just cover the story. You gave so much detail on what was happening in Marvel at the time, how it became so popular, all the image comic stuff. Yeah, we, we delve into that, and how it all fell apart. The 90s really was such a crazy time to be a comic book fan. This episode was my favourite. Can't wait to see what's next. Thank you, Fuzzy. There's tons more awesome stuff coming your way every single month on that. Uh, Peter J on Patreon also got in touch. And Peter J is our very first ever subscriber. Uh, the first of many, and we love when he gets in touch with his thoughts. Um, and he got in touch about the X-Men uh, animated episode, the Night of the Sentinels that we just had. And he communicates via Patreon, which means that he gets preferential treatment when we want to uh, think about whose letters and, and stories and memories to involve and include in these proper shows. Peter J said, I really didn't think that I had anything to say about the cartoon series until I heard the episode. That episode about the 90s X-Men cartoon was quite marvellous. I really didn't know what to expect or how I was going to interact with a thing that I have no real knowledge of and haven't seen. During the time frame that these cartoons aired, the 90s, I was working a lot of long hours. On top of that, at least two of the places I lived didn't have TV aerials or cable or satellite dishes, Ooh. so there was no way of me seeing them anyway. Also, during my late teens, I had stopped buying comics, primarily because there was so much about me that was geeky and nerdy <laughs> that something I had to give if I wanted to fit in. Mate, Peter J, I, was exact, I am ex always exactly the same. Um, I can remember making a conscious effort uh, when I went to big school, high school, to go, okay, wrestling, nobody likes wrestling. <laughs> I don't have a single friend who likes wrestling. All my wrestling friends have stopped liking wrestling. So I'm on my own here. I'm going to just like stop now and, 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 and pretend to like football. <laughs> Try to fit in. I'm, gonna I'm not going to stop reading and buying comics, but I'm going to stop talking about it. And I'm going to pretend to like Manchester United. Because that's what everyone around me is talking about. And I just want to fit in. Um, so I really understand that. Uh, Peter J says, it's a real shame to do that. And, and I know I'm not alone when it comes to giving up something you love. Because you suddenly deem it childish or silly. But around this time I was getting back into comics. Basically I thought, what does it matter now? I'm an adult and I can do what I want. And people don't get that are the ones that are missing out. Yeah. Yes. That's the ethos of this show. That is the ethos of this show. 
we're adults now. We can do whatever we want. <laughs> it's also, you know, it, 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 it speaks to a certain experience that youngsters today don't have. Like, because you, you don't understand how much of an outsider it made you to read superhero comics as a child or a teenager mm. or an adult. Like... Before now, you could say, oh, you know, like the movies that you have definitely seen. And everyone will go, yeah, you're right. Yeah, I have definitely seen the Avengers. So it's not a weird thing to read a comic about them. But, you know, back in the day, the 90s, it was, we heard. Um, This podcast is about trying all this together. Sorry, this podcast is about tying all this together, for me anyway, all the movies, new and old, all the cartoons, and all the comics becoming interlinked. It's great that people want to know where it all started. For years, people would think you're slightly odd if they discovered you read comics after the age of 11. Mm. Then boom, 2008 and the film Iron Man, and the world went crazy for it. And now, this linking it all up, thanks for showing me something I missed out on at the time and showing me where and how it fits into this journey we are on. Peter J, what can I say? What a great letter. It is a journey we're all on. Oh, we are all about those steps that link it all through. The, the, the X-Men cartoon is as we have chronicled in that epic episode, an integral part of us eventually getting the MCU and eventually Marvel changing the entertainment world and, and, and the and the realm of pop culture. Um, it's all connected! <laughs> so, I think it's time uh, that we dust off the old VHS <laughs> from a film that's in 2015. We dust off the old VHS for such a new film. Uh, and we are ready to tackle the magnificent, tiny adventure that is Ant-Man. So, away we go. In 1989, Hank Pym resigns from S.H.I.E.L.D. after discovering Howard Stark's attempt to replicate his own shrinking technology, which Pym believes is very dangerous and vows to suppress it. After S.H.I.E.L.D. representative Mitchell Carson insults Pym and suggests Hank is responsible for the death of his own wife, Hank responds by smashing Carson's face into the table and bloodying his nose. Pym vows to yeah! never... Yeah! <laughs> Get him! Pym vows to never let anyone use his technology again. In the present, Pym's estranged daughter, Hope Van Dyne, and protege, Darren Cross, have forced him from his own company, Pym Technologies. Furthermore, Pym is more devastated when Cross unravels his own project, an advanced shrinking suit named the Yellow Jacket Suit, based on Pym's original technology. So, I I know uh, you you hate me talking about CGI and whatnot, (laughs) And I know right. in ten years' time we're going to look back on this, and you're and if we spoke about it, then you know in in the future you go. But it was the time, Will uh, Michael Douglas, old voice, young face. <laughs> when I do, it, I didn't notice it. I I know I noticed the voice right away because obviously it's Michael Douglas, and you're looking at him going, okay, so we got eighties Douglas, but his voice is old, and then you have Haley Atwell. With the opposite, old face, young voice. And I just found that, 
I, I, okay, I've watched it's. I, this is the upteenth time I've watched it, and I've only really sort of pe- really pegged onto it. But I just thought it was such a great opposite bit because obviously I, the young actor being. I, old. Know, I noticed all the aging stuff and discrepancies in the Irishman, yeah, where they ooh. had a, a guys in their forties limping, like creaking old, oh, you know, geriatrics. Yeah, but I didn't. I didn't. I, I've, I've seen this, you know, a handful of uh, probably. Three times I've never it's never let out at me, but you know, probably because they did the right thing here and just saved this sort of thing for a minor flashback scene rather have, than the entire you, film. Have you ever watched classic Doctor Who? Then you must not be able to. I uh, maybe as a kid I, I watched the odd Doctor Who as a kid, but I don't have also. Memory. Theatre is going to really suck for you, mate. Let me tell you this: you can tell that the things on stage are sets. Sometimes oh. they'll wheel them off. It's it's so it's so awful. And sometimes there'll be like a crowd scene, and there's not even a real crowd. It's like five people and some sound. Of, I, I just would ne- don't go to the basically don't go to the theatre, mate. I would say it's a terrible experience for you. It's not it's not real. I I, so. I have gone to the theatre, and do you know who I last? Oh, saw? Oh, I'm so sorry. And do you know who I last saw at the theatre? Sir Ian McKellen. No, Alfred Molina. Someone off the telly. Alfred, ah, I saw Doc, I saw Doc Ock, uh, and he was very good. And I and they did they didn't need spe- they didn't need special effects. It was fine. Uh, <laughs> okay, moving on from that. Uh, okay, I I'm sorry, but I know it's, it's, it's Earth six one six. But how can anyone keep a straight face at the prospect of an army of yellow jackets? Why isn't that? T- tiny soldiers is a really useful, dangerous thing. It, it's incredibly useful, but it's terrifying. Oh, it just, it's you, terrifying. Just... So, what do you mean by straight face then? Laughing? Oh, oh, they're, they're just sort. I, I would have been like, "Whoa, this is a." Oh right, this, 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 right. Is, this, this is a. Well, I can't remember the guy who invented the nuclear bomb, um, who who basically said, "Oh my god, I've, I've realized I've basically created destruction." Like uh, it, it, it faced with such horrific power, right, there should there right. should have been some a realization of. Do you think we're going oh, too far no. with this? No, no. These people have all got stonking erections under the table. These are warmongering government like oh you're going to destroy some nations oh so give me so happy g- give me the laser gun that turns children into spaghetti i want That's them on after. my tanks firing in all directions at all times i mean i don't know i just looked at this and went no this is this is this is the kind of technology that can easily fall into the wrong hands and oh i don't know it, it, that that amount of mass production is just made me almost yell going no don't do it don't do it <laughs> have one suit and that's enough <laughs> so tech companies uh, and the military and other people with massive erections for this kind of thing uh, building company <laughs> weapons you know corporate takeovers a lot it does feel like iron man especially with the presence of a stark uh, does hank Pim have a company like this in the comics. Is he involved in military? He's, I mean, he's always involved in 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 science, and he has uh, labs, and he yeah. has staff and stuff. But it's never presented that he has his own company. It's never presented as anything like Pim Tech. That's way mm. way too much like Tony Stark and Iron Man. That they they wouldn't really replicate that in the comics because it would just feel like Iron Man light or Tony Stark light. Pym is funded by a series of grants and, and stuff like a lot like a lot of scientists are in America, things like that, you know, funding and granting and stuff from other companies. And um 
one time Hank's life goes off the rails. Um, his wife divorces him. He's kicked off the Avengers, and you know, not just to show you that he does not own, he does not have an amazing company like this. He's properly broke. Ooh. Like he has no job anymore. He's got no funding coming in, and so he he ends up taking a job working for one of the his old supervillain enemies, like a scientist uh, called Egghead, which we don't have time to get into. Um, and uh, Egghead's like, I've got this, this, I've got this, like science science work that he's doing, and I need someone. And Hank, Hank Pym's like, I'm really broke, so I'll do it. Uh, yeah, so he doesn't have... I mean, tr- traditionally as well, unlike uh, Tony, he doesn't sell his inventions to the public. No. Uh, to to like, create a big... To, no. Ooh. He is... Um, so 616 Hank Pym is the government's bitch, essentially. <laughs> Uh, he makes tons of stuff for the military industrial complex. Uh, lots of stuff for Shield. Um, well, less Shield because it's more Tony. But well, yeah, Shield and and just the the military and the gun. Like mm. he invents a prison system where supervillains would be shrunk down to insect size and kept prisoner inside a, a prison that is essentially the size of a dollhouse because <laughs> everything's so small. And it's called the Big House, of yes. course. Yep, 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 yep. And you only need like one member of staff. <laughs> so, first of all, that is cruel and unusual punishment to the prisoner. Yes. And Hank has just single-handedly, like, slashed employment rates. <laughs> uh, we don't need. We've not. Have you automated it? No, we've miniaturized it, and so we just need. To be fair, the cleaner can make sure the little insect men don't run away, so we don't need any of you well-paid staff anymore. Um, And during the superhero Civil War, which we'll get to, um, Pym did some proper boot-licking authority stuff. He helped create a prison for all of the superheroes on Captain America's side, and that prison was in the negative zone, which is this hellish landscape we've talked about during uh, Annihilation and with the Fantastic Four and stuff. And um, He worked with Reed Richards to create a cybernetic clone soldier of Thor that was used as a weapon for, the, for Iron Man's side uh, called Ragnarok. <laughs> uh, so yeah, he's a proper... He, he proper suckles on the teats of the military industrial complex. What a bad complex it is indeed. So we fast forward to the present day. Meanwhile, Scott Lang has been released from San Quentin State Prison after serving three years for burglarizing a former employer. He reunites with his former cellmate, Luis, and his two other partners, Kurt and Dave, who, who offer to bring him in on the burglary job they're planning. But... Lang explains his intention is to go straight. Furthermore, he learns that his ex-wife Maggie has got engaged to a police officer and that she will be stopping Scott's visitation access to his daughter until he starts paying child support. Uh, Michael Peña, I think I got it right, uh, as, as Louis... I think it's Peña. Peña, Peña, is great casting. 
I think I, I, I haven't seen him in much else before I saw this film, and then, and then he started popping up everywhere. Uh, he's, he, he's, he's, he's what a memorable, cha- what a memorable character he is. I mean, it, oh yeah, fantastic, yeah, yeah, great. Yeah. great I mean, non-Marvel side cat. Well, I don't know if he is a character in the comics. We can get to that. We'll get to that later. We'll get to that later. But it's like, what a what a great non-superhero character. Um, and also, I as, as I mentioned before, I, I couldn't get around them casting Paul Rudd as a superhero. But to be honest, within the first few minutes, he's just so damn likable. You're just like, yeah, I'll, I'll watch it. I'll watch it. Yeah, I think it. You know, he's not. He's not meant. Well, you're going to walk out. <laughs> I can't. But you know what? These actors too mild for such an affair. I am done with film. Obviously, it wouldn't work if they cast him as Captain America no, or no, Thor. But no. it's you know you. But in any in, in the same way, if you cast um, Robert Downey Jr. as Captain America, that'd be bad casting. If you cast Robert Downey Jr. as Thor, it would be bad casting. Uh, you know, yeah, you you've got to play to the strengths that the actor can can do. Exactly. Also, that Baskin Robbins firing scene was hilarious <laughs> and unfair. It was very it, yeah. It was originally meant to be Starbucks, but they did not want to be presented in that light, so they turned it down. And Baskin Robbins went, yeah, yeah. Well, we'll we'll fire him. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I, I it was it was kind of like yeah, this is the great motivation the character needs to get back into robbering because going straight clearly doesn't work. So, is robbering rob oh robbering, ladies and gentlemen? What a great bit of English language That's... from Will there. Robbering. Oh no, no, because I thought you were referring to the difference between burglary and robbery. No, you just said robbering. Robbering. It's the motivation the character needs to get back into robbering. Robbering. <laughs> but but there's, there was a great there was a great line where they say uh, you're done for uh, ro- burglar rob- robbing. You you robbed them. No no no. I burgled them. I didn't rob them. Burg- burgling is this rob- robbing something else. So there's a slight difference between the two. And I, and I, part of me went, was that in Edgar Wright's script? Because that would make so much sense if it was. If that oh. I, I, that was a very Edgar Wright moment there. Because you know when they have those moments, they they have a nice play on words moments, the English language in the Cornetto trilogy. You get that odd bit of like, hey, we're going to break away from the dick jokes and the geek stuff, and we're going to do a nice, genuinely bit of uh, wordplay, and and it works. Genuine bit of wordplay. Genuine bit of wordplay, you know, genuinely good bit of wordplay. Anyway, I thought you were referring to that. So is Scott's backstory like this in the comics? I mean, you mentioned he's an ex-con, but is it like this? Um, Scott Lang is he's um, an electronic engineer ooh yes um, and he, he meets someone called Peggy not Maggie and they ha- they get married and have a daughter called Cassie and although he's an electronics expert he he just couldn't support his family doing repair work so because he'd done an awful lot of electronic stuff on home security systems he started to to turn to burglary, so he, he he gets caught and he goes to prison sentence and he's paroled for good behaviour, but during his time in prison, his wife divorces him, oh. and he, he but while in prison he also, um, like in, furthers his his electronics study, and he gets multiple you know qualifications whilst inside, and then when he's released, he gets hired by Stark International. To work in one of their, you know, electronics departments, and he actually first appears as an in- intentionally as a background character 
helping to install security equipment in uh, Avengers Mansion. Oh, okay. And uh, but they 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 introduce him that and they're gearing him up for his big solo adventure the following month. Mm. So that's yeah. I I think it makes more sense for him that for him to do that rather than go. Oh, I'll try and work at Baskin Robbins, even though I'm really qualified to do much bit more than this. Yeah, but I think what it's trying to show is how they don't spend they they, they spend a little bit of time on his electronics mm. background, but it's not like. It's not highlighted as a major thing for him, yeah. really. Not until a bit later on. But I think it's meant to sort of show how how systematically difficult it is for anyone who's served a prison sentence to get kind of almost any job. Um, so, yeah. They don't have, you know, a Tony Stark company working really hard to hire ex-cons. Yeah, yeah. That's 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 a whole different conversation for another time. So back to the film. Scott tries to get himself a job so he can start paying child support and see his daughter. But his criminal background means that nobody wants to hire him. After having an endless stream of doors shut in his face, Scott reluctantly agrees to go along on Louis's burglary job. Following Louis's plan... Scott has to overcome the highly sophisticated security at an inventor's house and crack open their safe. Expecting to find valuable items, Scott is disappointed to only find what he calls an old motorcycle suit inside the safe. With nothing else to steal, Scott takes the suit and flees from the house before he can be caught in the act. Unbeknownst to anyone, Scott is being spied on by hidden cameras. Meanwhile... Darren Cross tests his shrinking technology but has miserable results and can't get it to work. So again, uh, saying how great Louise is, uh, the recap montages are perfect. They're absolutely perfect. I know there's only two of them. I'm really glad they didn't overuse them. They're such a great... And, and they've been memed to death, obviously, because they're so that, that good. And again, I will say, uh, very Edgar Wright. The Those montages are so Edgar Wright. They read. I can only imagine. Well, they, 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 they are very stylized. Stylized. I, I, they, they don't leap out to me as being very Edgar Wright. They're stylized. They don't. They don't quite have to me that Wrightian, um, Pilgrim spaced, hot fuzz feel to them. But they're very. They're very quick and stylized. Oh, so I could imagine them being in that. Yeah. Just this moment, I've just thought of a a a, a further to my argument. Remember Shaun of the Dead? Their plan. So the plan is pick up Liz, da, 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 go to the pub, and they'd repeat over and over again. It's that same kind of quick swap thing, and of I, I think it's like it, that. It's it's a bit it's a bit some. I I, mm. I don't. I, I mean, again, it's stylized, so mm. I can I can take that on board. But for instance, there are that scene in Shaun of the Dead. It, it, it feels very much like a lot of the scenes in Spaced, and feels very much like a lot of the scenes in. Hot Fuzz and End of the World. This just this is some quick cutting, but it doesn't quite have that writing feel to it to okay. me. It's stylized though, so I can see the intent was very probably that. Yeah, yeah. I can I can hundred percent believe it. It perhaps came from that that background in it. Oh yeah, of course. And when we were talking about, we've always talked about genre in uh, Marvel Marvel Universe. Sorry, MCU films. Uh, here we've got ourselves a heist movie. It's a nice little heist yeah, movie. Yeah, I guess it? we have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Perfect. I, I, I like it because you, you go in there going, ah, oh, it's another superhero film. Oh, no, it's a heist movie. This is good. You're not you're going to say yeah, something. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, yeah. I, 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 here's the thing. You generally come out of a heist movie going, that was a heist movie. Mm. It, it has to be... It, I, I I don't know. I, I think it is... We, we, we do see the... Marvel will do Marvel first and foremost, and there are elements on, on you know, hmm. like so. The, the Winter Soldier very much felt like a Jason Bourne style movie. Yeah, I don't think this is overwhelmingly a heist movie, but you you, you know what? The more I think, I mean, it, it is. You're right. There's a crew, and it's kind of funny, and it's got that ocean, that modern Ocean's <laughs> Eleven. Yeah, yeah, yeah elements to it so yeah i i just i don't know I, I think i think perhaps because the superhero aspect of it um or the sci-fi aspect of it it kind of is bigger and bolder but yeah i think i'm talking myself out of it i but yes I, I, you, I, I, let's yeah. let's say you're right yeah. i i like that bit where you say i'm right <laughs> also uh Okay, I'm not going to go down my really ridiculous engineering sort of, oh, they didn't do that right. But it's like, I, I like, I do like that things shrink to the exact centre of where they were, even though that's extremely unhelpful. Yeah, you don't shrink yeah. onto your feet, do no. you? You shrink into the centre of your mass. Everybody knows that's exactly how shrinking technology works in the yeah, real world. Yeah, of course, yeah. <laughs> but it, but, it's, but it is, it is. You're, you're, you're going to be, well... There's so many things that can go wrong, I mean, in terms of size of atoms and whatnot. But yeah, if you're going to shrink something and you're saying this thing's going to be shrunk, yeah, you shrink to the, to the, to the centre because that's where it's all pulling to, the centre. Sure. Sure. Why not? Why not? That's a good rule. So with Louis, uh, great, as we said, can't gush about him enough. Great character and psychic for Scott. It, is he a comic book character? No. Um, oh! Total... Total invention for the for the movie. Um, Michael uh, Michael Pena has said he based the character on a friend of his who was a criminal. He, that's how he based the performance on. Um, yeah, so no Marvel Marvel Comics subsequently after the movie it, it introduced the character into the comic books because <laughs> because it was so so uh, popular or well they just they try very you know. Marvel try hard. Well, do they try hard? Marvel don't want to alter anything that they're doing in in terms of the stories they're telling to fit. They don't want to like change every character so their personality is like the movies. Yeah. But they then go out of their way to introduce characters that have the same name and try to find them a role. It's, it makes for very odd reading, quite frankly. Yeah. Um, but they, they, they try, they try. And uh, yeah, um, uh, uh, Luis turns up in Nick Spencer's Astonishing Ant-Man series, which is which is really good. Stay tuned for the reading list at the end of the episode if you're looking for recommendations, because we've got lots. Of course. Uh, that's, that's good. I think the last character they got from the movies to appear in the comics, was it uh, Agent Coulson? Did he? Did he ever pop up in the comics? I think I read he did. Agent Agent Coulson does. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. They we've already discussed how they completely changed Nick Fury. They <laughs> uh, get rid of white Nick Fury and introduce black son of Nick Fury, and then slash his eye out and give him an eye patch. And yeah, it, they arm and Tamzarian him, and it's, <laughs> they are very 
they're very odd with their approach to make things more like the movies, but not really. I I I was still uh, appreciating your coining uh, use use of the word Arn and Tanzarin in well whatever the phrase you're using. I love that reference. Great. Um, so is this this is how he gets his hands on the Ant Man suit? The comics? Did you say? It it, it it's sort of similar. Yeah. Mm. So Cassie, his daughter, develops a rare heart ailment. Yeah. That drains Scott's like finances and makes him start to talk, think about going back to crime. He learns of this doctor, uh, Erica Sondheim, experimental approach to heart surgery. He goes to seek her out and he sees her being abducted by like big burly men, um, and he follows them. But he's unable to. He he takes a look at the building. And he's like, I can't, I can't get past that security system. Mm. Um, I can't get into where they're keeping Doctor Sondheim. Um, so choosing not to call the police or anyone, <laughs> he just leaves. <laughs> um, and then trying to get quick cash, he 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 robs the home of Hank Pym. Uh, not knowing it's Hank Pym, and 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 he or he might know. I'm not. He he actually might know. He might go there because he's a famous person. Mm. I can't 100 percent remember that, but he doesn't find any cash or jewels. He finds the Ant Man costume. He masters the shrinking tech and the cybernetic helmet like immediately, and then he's like, "Oh, okay, I can actually get past that security system now, and I can go and save her, and then she can save my daughter." So. Yeah, it, it has some similarities. I like that. Simple, logical steps, like something from a 90s adventure game. <laughs> you can't do that yet. You must get this thing first. Yeah, but he doesn't... He's not inte- He doesn't... In- I don't think he intends to do it. I'm... I'm. Uh, you know what? I've, I don't think he intends to... I don't think he goes to Hank Pym's house on purpose. Hmm. I I don't believe I'm not I might be wrong I I I I, I yes but a lot with adventure games they can be a bit obtuse at times and you somehow through yeah. serendipity uh, end up with what you need next get exactly what you need yeah, yeah. and yeah. and that's what I appreciate and are frustrated by with nineties uh, uh, adventure games especially by uh, Lucas Arts anyway back to the film Scott has the strange suit he stole at his apartment questioning. Why someone would hide it in a safe. Scott stands in the bathtub, puts the suit on, and starts toying with it. Triggering a button, he inadvertently shrinks himself down to the size of an insect and enters a world of danger in his own apartment. A small trickle of water in the bath is like a huge flood to Scott's small size, and the force of the waves hurl him out of the bath Falling through the cracks in the floor in his tiny form, Scott drops down into the other apartments beneath his. He nearly gets trampled to death at a party and then gets sucked up into a vacuum cleaner before being attacked by a rat. Scott uses a rat trap to fling himself away from the rat and out of an open window. He lands on the roof of a car where where he transforms back to his normal size. Throughout his shrunken adventure, a voice talks to Scott through the helmet, telling him, that what he's going through is a trial run. Once he's survived, the voice tells him to keep the suit and wait further instruction. Absolutely brilliant scene. I, I Really great, really great fun, and, and really, like, use the shrinking thing to show, to show us 
Like you, like this might not seem like there could be loads of action and adventure in it, but there can. Like just literally in an apartment, there's loads of danger suddenly. Oh, it, it's where it's where it gets truly creative. But what I loved was they used they used a camera lens effect uh, for the small bits. So you know when you, when you can tell something's really small or whether it's actually yeah. a normal size thing far away, and it has that certain depth of field. I think. Where it seems like things are a bit blurry around the outside, or, for, or at a certain distance, and things are ultra sharp. It's like when you zoomed into yeah. something; it has that same effect there. So it does. It's not like oh, it looks like just normal, except everything's big. No, no, no. This looks like we're zoomed in with a special lens, and I love that yeah. effect used. It, it it just made it feel uh, substantial. It made it, it it didn't feel like a cheap effect. It made it feel like a bit more than that. Like they went, no, we want to make this look like we're examining his adventure. That, and that's great effects. Cool. Great effects. So small things being a big threat, obviously, really cool. That and obviously that is something that happens in the comics, right? Yeah. Well, to 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 begin with, um, mm. in 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 those first sort of two Hank Pym stories in the sixties, it's it's almost full on horror movie. It, it's very much. The Incredible Shrinking Man, where everything is a danger, like a cat could is a giant monster that could rip you apart. Um, Hank Hank Pym finds himself in an ant hill with these giant ants coming towards him like a stampeding herd of cattle, um, mm. and they are you know there's no reasoning with them; they're monstrous, and and he gets stuck in a little bit of honey which at his size is like quicksand and he's drowning in it and he it's sti- you know imagine how you know how sticky honey is obviously but to be immersed in it and drowning in a pool of it you know it, it's Oof. quite evocative and, and and kind of like you know it's for kids but it's it's kind of scary it, it freaked me out when i read it um as as a child um and he 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 finally gets attacked by an ant and is nearly torn apart by its mandibles you know, like almost like those jaws that it has, mm. and ants ants are insanely strong for their size. Yeah, incredibly. Um, but once they reintroduce him as a superhero, it's um, a lot safer. The Ant Man costume is really durable; it protects him from physical damage. And once he gets the helmet, he can control insects, so they are not going to come in and attack him. Mm. And also, he now has a constant army at his beck and call. Um, so that doesn't recur much beyond that. I'm sure there's the odd story here and there. Well, in fact, yeah, there, there, there are stories where he's shrunken down and left without his his helmet, so it becomes dangerous again. And Scott Lang, pretty much right from the get go, he's actually on a mission. He's got another. He, he hasn't got really got time to be dealing with this kind of stuff, and he masters the suit and the helmet really quickly because he's an adept at technical stuff so he doesn't deal with with that kind of drama to begin with no 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 of course not. i um it just reminded me uh, i went i went through a michael Crichton phase uh, a couple of years back and read a lot of his books and he did one called micro about shrinking technology and i'm just remembering of all these similar uh, uh you know threats that happened in there, there as well and there was it was it was a bit darker than ant-man but still pretty good Michael Crichton is the only person in history to have simultaneously the number one movie, the number one best-selling novel, and the number one TV series at the same time. ER and Jurassic Park. Ah, uh, but what was the book? Uh, it must have been Jurassic Park, right? 
The movie is Jurassic Park. Yeah, yeah, but the book was bestseller as well. At the same time? Okay, I'll, I'll say no. What was the book? I think I think it might actually be. I think it might actually be because I think it had a huge surge in. Um, yeah, I can't quite remember, but I'm, 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 I'd be willing to think it would. I think when the movie came out, the book went back to number one, probably. I, I will then, say course, it's, a, ER. it's a fantastic book. Quite different from the film, a bit darker in tone. I won't gush over it, but I say if you like Jurassic Park the film, read the book. It's brilliant. Okay, uh, right. Back to the film. Terrified by this frightening experience, Scott attempts to return the suit back to the house where he stole it from, but Scott gets caught red-handed by the police and is arrested. Hank Pym gets into the police station posing as Scott's lawyer. In a private meeting, Hank reveals that he not only let Scott steal the size-changing suit, but he engineered the entire heist, making sure the job landed in Scott's lap. Hank reveals that he knows all about Scott's life and his ex-wife keeping him from his daughter. He tells Scott to go back to his cell and wait for the right opportunity to chance his life. Back in his cell, Scott sees a group of ants crawl through the bars, carrying something very small. Upon closer inspection, he sees that the ants have bought him the special suit, shrunk down to a tiny size. Although confused, Scott puts the suits on and hears Hank Pym's voice guiding him through a daring escape of the police station. Pym directs Scott to a flying ant equipped with a saddle, which flies Scott to safety. I, 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 I got to point out now, uh, it was really weird to see the two cops are played uh, for famously by gangsters from two other shows. <laughs> so you've got uh, Avon Barksdale from The Avon. Wire. Avon. Yeah, yeah, Avon, yeah. Avon. And uh, the policeman who's uh, also uh, dating his ex-wife, uh, Jip Rossetti from Boardwalk Empire. Yeah, yeah. Very, he's very scary in that show. He's incredibly... Oh, he's, he's just very unhinged, yeah. Very unhinged. And to see him... I, I liked him in this. I, obviously, I won't say what happens later, but, but it was a point where I just I like them. I like this character. Yeah, he he he's got the feel of Ray Romano's brother about him from *Everybody Loves <laughs> Raymond*. Like kind of goofy, lovable, but also big, and he's a cop. Yeah. I got that impression from him. Um, I I always, I mean, it's a little bit different in movies, but whenever I see anyone from *The Wire* in anything else, <laughs> I always think. Oh, it's such a shame you're having to slum it in something that isn't The Wire. Can, <laughs> I, I, it must be so bad going from the greatest scripts you've ever read to this episode of Law and Order. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I saw two actors from The Wire pop up in an episode of The Walking Dead. D'Angelo Barksdale and who was Herc? Herc and his partner. Oh, now you're asking yeah, me. Yeah, you, you know who I mean, though. Yeah. They both yeah, pop yeah, up yeah. in The, the guy Walking Dead. The guy that... The guy that get, keeps getting, that gets really promoted lots towards the end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, uh, they, they both pop up in The Walking Dead, and it's just like later seasons of The Walking Dead. I might. Oh, add as what well. a shame! What a shame! <sighs> yeah, not good. Anyway, Hank Pym is the real manipulator in this film, isn't he? So, is he is he that Machiavellian in the comic books? Does he manipulate Scotts? No, not really. No. <laughs> um, like like in the movie, um, when Scott... Oh, Hank is secretly watching when someone manages to break into his house and steal the Ant-Man gear. Mm. Um, and then he proceeds to send insects with tiny cameras to follow Scott so he can watch his first adventure yeah. and see what he does. So he knows who's stolen it and he knows where they are 
and he doesn't do anything or call the police. He just watches them through some ant cameramen. Um, <laughs> and at the end of the day, when Scott has used the Ant-Man powers to save that doctor and stop the bad guy, and then she saved his daughter, Scott is Scott is ready to turn himself in. Ooh. His whole thing is, I'll, I'll turn myself into the police, mm. hand the suit over to the authorities and go back to prison. Because I know what I've done. And Scott is a good person. But Hank Pym steps in and is like, um, let's just not do that. Yeah. <laughs> because, you know, that would be stupid. I watched you the whole time. You handled yourself really well. You used the suit to help people. And that was all you did with the suit. You didn't become opportunistic with it. So let's just not tell the police about this. And why don't you keep the powers and become the new Ant-Man? And it that is it is frankly ludicrous <laughs> that an Avenger has security lax enough for a regular burglar to break in and do that. And it's ludicrous that he sits back and watches what what's this guy gonna like Hank Pym is watching essentially going is he is he gonna start murdering people <laughs> I don't know I'm just gonna watch is he is he gonna go and steal loads of other weapons of mass destruction I've no idea I'm Hank Pym I'm not leaving the house this is better than Netflix this is like so, when people f- uh, record things instead of phoning the police <laughs> For- yeah so yeah the movie kind of manages to paper over that slack 70s comic book logic and says (laughs) if you steal from hank pym it's got to be because hank pym let you steal from him it's gonna be because he has a plan so what was obviously key in, in their minds is the idea that scott steals the suit because that ties together him as an ex-con Downers look back against the wall in a really tough position. And it ties how can an average guy like you or me Mm. become Ant-Man? Well, he steals something, and what he steals gives him superpowers. So they obviously thought that was a really um, key, cool, and good bit of the story. But in a modern storytelling, you kind of couldn't have it be how it is in the 70s, where he just stumbles across Hank Pym's house and gets the suit and Hank Pym watches him for no reason. So yeah, they, they tidy that up here. I like that. I like that. That is some real sanding down of the edges. Yeah. So arriving at the house he stole the suit from, Scott is confronted by Hank and Hope who reveal that everything he's been through was in order to recruit him for the most impossible heist in history. Pym tells Scott about discovering the Pym particles and mastering their size-changing abilities. Darren Cross stole the Pym Tech Company away from Hank and has been experimenting with Pym particles and the destructive yellow jacket suit. Hank reveals that Pym particles are dangerous and without his control helmet, they could drive a person insane, something which Hank believes has already happened to Darren Cross. Although Hope has a strained relationship with Hank and is upset about her mother's dis- uh, mysterious disappearance, she has been spying on Cross and reporting back to Hank. Hank wants Scott to steal the yellow jacket suit from Cross in exchange for ensuring he can see his daughter again. So, before we go get into Darren Cross, um, this whole thing about uh, causing insanity, Hank Particles can cause insanity. That's what he says. 
I, I'll talk about it later, but I, yeah, I, I don't, I, I, I find it a bit, it isn't explored enough. Um, so Darren Cross seems like your typical bad dude. Is he a comic book character? Yeah, he's right there. He's the antagonist in Scott's first adventure in the Stolen Ooh, Ant-Man yes. suit. Um, but he dies, and then that's it. He's not popular, and he doesn't return. <laughs> uh, so uh, so Darren Cross um, is diagnosed with a rare heart condition. Mm. And he uses his own technology to create an experimental nuclear organic pacemaker nuclear organic pacemaker to save his life and although it's a success the nuclear organic pacemaker mutates his body and turns cross into this like neanderthal giant and he's got superhero strength and and, and abilities but as a side effect of the mutation he burns like his he's overusing his heart and he burns his heart out because he's so big and so powerful and a human heart isn't built for that so he he has a very weak heart. So his henchmen go out and kidnap homeless people and drag them back to his lab, where he like murders them and rip, well takes their oh. heart out while they're still alive, replaces it with a new heart to start burning through that. So he's going through loads of different hearts, and he's got this like they keep stealing homeless people to transplant his heart very quickly. So. Desperate to stop this, because this is not a tenable future. He kidnaps famed heart surgeon, Dr. Erica Sondheim, to replace his damaged heart or to improve it or to give him something better. Um, and that's So Scott tracks that down with the Ant-Man suit and uh, interrupts the procedure. But it's just happened. He's just put like a new kind of heart. She's just put a new heart in him. And there's a battle between Cross and Ant-Man. And... But his his new heart doesn't do anything. It just like he burns through it just as much, <laughs> and he dies. And after he dies, Doctor Sondheim says, "Oh yeah, no, I I didn't I didn't give him a new heart. <laughs> I just put the old one back in, so he'd die." <laughs> oh, oh, that's nasty. <laughs> which which is brilliant. Um, and so yeah, and that's the end of that's the end of Darren Cross. He never comes back until once the movie's been released. And coming out, Marvel did what they always do, and that's introduce any movie character right back into the comics. Just shoehorn that mf in, just whatever we've got to do. So, yeah, there's a, some plot point where, in the comics, David Cross's body has been cryogenically frozen <laughs> for all these years by by his rich family members, and he sometime, somehow gets resurrected and brought back and stuff. So, yeah, I gather he's now running around, or he was anyway for a period of time. 2015, he was brought back as a villain. Yeah. Bloody hell. So, back to the film. Hope and Hank begin training Scott to perfectly control and manipulate the Ant-Man. The objective... Is for Scott to be is for Scott to be about to alter his size so quickly he is unstoppable and uncatchable. Hope explains that when he is shrunk, he still possesses all the strength and force of a two hundred pound man acting as a bullet. She cautions him that hitting someone too hard could kill them. Hope trains Scott to fight while Hank teaches him to control ants for fast transport and defense. So controlling the ants feels very Aquaman. I thought I'd never 
put two and two. I'd never thought that in my life. It's, again, I have these, I have these, mar- these comic, lifelong comic book Marvel fan blinkers on, where I, I, I'd never thought of that. I guess so. Yeah, Aquaman does talk to fish. Um, talk to fish. Yeah. You make that sound like he has no one else to talk to, rather than command the sea creatures. No, he just talks to fish. He's very lonely. If your if your first impression of Aquaman is. Jason Moma in the movies. Yeah. I can see why you think I'm downgrading him. I I come from a very different world where Aquaman is the worst member of the Justice League. He's the ludicrous member of the Super Friends. He hangs around in the background, <laughs> hoping that water is involved in this yeah. week's adventure. Yeah, he talks to he talks to fish. That was it's weird. That was uh, they did that on South Park where they had the uh, Justice League or the Super Friends. And it was just basically the heads of each religion, like Jesus and Moses and whatnot. And then you had uh, Aquaman, but they called it, it was called Seaman. But every time, and, and he just hung around the background waiting to get joined in and would just be left out. But every time they, they said Seaman, they started laughing because it sounds rude. <laughs> It's it's that that sort of those sort of parodies will always happen because the Super Friends, the Hanna Barbera cartoon, mm. because of how how much it was shown and it yeah. went to syndication and stuff, it's a cultural touchstone for like several generations. And that joke about Aquaman is such a prevalent joke. It's kind of gone now because I don't think that's watched. In, but it, if it's so for so long, whether you're watching Seinfeld or. You know any of these top tier kind of American shows? There'll be a, an Aquaman or a Super Friends gag in there somewhere because it was just, yeah, very well, very, very. It just was so, so uh, part of pop culture. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I don't didn't like Jason Momoa's Aquaman in the Justice League film that much, to be honest. I so I I, uh, <laughs> I was I was watching TV the other day and the Justice League film was on. <sighs> Uh, and my dad had the remote control, and he went, "Oh, Justice League!" My dad used to read comics when he was a kid. That's how I started to read mm. comics. And he went, "Oh, Justice League!" And he said, "Is this film any good?" And I said, <laughs> I, "I, I haven't seen it. I, I'm a huge, huge, huge comic book fan. I've never bothered to see it because they've turned me off so much." And he went, "Oh, watch a bit of this." And he put it on, and his first comment was when he saw Superman. And everything he said. It all looks like it all looks like a video game. The whole thing looks yeah. like a video game. And then he saw Jason Moma and he said, Who's that? And I said and I started to laugh. Like, <laughs> that dad, that is Aquaman. And he went, You what? That's who? That's not bloody Aquaman. And then he just he just turned the telly off and went to bed. Not having that. <laughs> that is the best response to Justice League I've Ever that, heard that is superb. that is a sixty-five-year-old Midland man's attitude to just modern Justice League. <laughs> one more thing, one more quick thing about uh, about that, that film. Uh, at one point, he sees something uh, epic happen, and Aquaman's response is "All right," and I just went, "Are you kidding yeah. me? Are you kidding me?" Anyway, yeah, we got to make we got to make everyone as cool as Iron Man is the mantra for Justice League. <sighs> they can't they can't be different. They have to all be just as cool as as Iron Man. Anyway, moving. We away want from- we want a movie of about six Iron Man characters, six six Tony Starks with slightly different powers. Zack Snyder, anyway. you are a burden upon movies. Anyway, uh, let's get back. So let's get back to this then. So. Lots of cool ways uh, to use Ant-Man's powers. Uh, can he do 
all all of this in the comics though he can talk to ants in the comics right Oh yeah, it's all yeah, it's all there in 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 in, in the comics uh, by by having like total and instinctive control over size changing. Ant Man can like hurl himself through the air like like nothing else really because weight and momentum mm. is so much of that. He can leap and propel himself with the force of a fully grown athlete. Yeah, but because his mass is tiny, it becomes this super heroic feat, and he can cover ma- you know really big distances. Admittedly. Distance is relative because he's that small, but um, you know, uh, yeah, he can being able to jump from the floor up to someone's face is a you know a, a, a super superhuman task, and he has that crazy he has that crazy size strength as well. Um, so he hits you, and it is the impact of a bullet, and it can be really dangerous. And he could command armies of spy, essentially the insects. Uh, like an army of spies that no mm. one can detect. Um, Scott is very much the guy using these abilities, and he's really good technician electrician as well. But Hank Pym's a bit of a different beast when it comes to abilities. He's Hank by the end of the sixties has changed his superhero identity like three times. He's been four different superheroes. <laughs> He's really too big for the Ant-Man role, and, and it's why he never goes back to it. Whether it's creating giant man powers or giving powers to the Wasp or inventing all these incredible ways to use size shifting for things like prisons and weapons, it's crazy. Um, around 2010, Hank Pym forms his own team of Avengers uh, just on his own and has this this TARDIS-like headquarters mm. That uses pin particles to essentially like fold space and reality. <laughs> so you you open the door in a regular apartment, yeah. and inside is a massive mansion with training facilities, yeah. and uh, uh, you know he rents he rents uh, uh, a garage, and inside is an you know the hangar for uh, to keep you know airplanes and stuff. <laughs> um, Around this time, he becomes recognised as the Scientist Supreme. So, in the same way that Doctor Strange is recognised as the Sorcerer Supreme for our dimension, other cultures, alien races and technologies recognise Hank Pym as the greatest scientist on Earth. Not not Tony Stark or Bruce Banner. Not Tony Stark, not Reed Richards, not Bruce Banner, Hank Pym. Yeah, he's actually the best scientist. Oh, that's that's crazy. He is recognised as that in in that run. Okay. Now, yeah. you know, some people might say the others don't need that title, and maybe Hank, maybe Hank's never had that recognition, and it would really help him to be thought of. You know, I don't know, but they really did start to write Hank as being, uh, yeah. A, a, on, on a par with any of those in terms of his science and stuff. Mm. So that is that has been Hank's focus really. The using all the different powers and the size changing and all of that is more what Scott's done since because Scott is really Scott's been Ant Man longer than Hank. Yeah. Uh Hank kind of just grows out of it very quickly. Scott since seventy nine has been Ant Man all the way through well, Except for that if, bit where he was dead. As long as you're just counting Ant Man and not when he's Giant Man and Goliath and whatnot. Yes, because he abandons yeah, the Ant Man yeah, yeah. role and yeah. Who needs that when you can grow big? 
So, okay, cool. Back to the film. Scott becomes adept at using his technical skills to fix the Ant-Man suit, but Hank warns him to never touch the subatomic regulator on the suit. Pym says that without the regulator to control the Pym particles, the wearer would continue to shrink down beyond the physical realm we know and become so small they are lost in a subatomic realm. Before going further with the mission, Pym tells Hope the truth about the death of her mother, Janet Van Dyne. When Pym was Ant-Man, Janet worked alongside him as the size-changing Wasp. On a dangerous mission to stop a Soviet nuclear missile, Janet sacrificed herself to deactivate the weapon, but in the process, she disappeared into a subatomic quantum realm. He admits that he does not want Hope to be in the same dangerous situation than the two reconcile. Very nice moment of drama here. Especially when, when you're looking at the flashback and they, can, they, they stopped a world-changing event like that happening. Yeah, yeah. Um, I also like that it, it, Pim's motivation for needing Scott is that he needs someone disposable, basically. <laughs> someone he, yeah. he needs someone he doesn't love. He, doesn't, he, he, he cannot let his daughter do this. Yep, yep. He can't do it, and he cannot let his daughter do it because this is how her mum died. So, yeah, I, I thought that all tied in very nicely. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So what can you tell us about uh, Janet Van Dyne and the Wasp? Oh, strap in! This is so <laughs> complicated. Okay, so in the comic books, Janet Van Dyne is the teenage daughter of Hank Pym's business partner hmm. who gets murdered. So Hank Pym just reveals his identity to this teenage girl and goes, I'm Ant-Man. And he's like, do you want to go and uh, try and kill your dad's murderers? <laughs> and she's like, uh, of course, yeah. And he goes, cool. Here's some pin particles to make you a superhero. And also, I'm going to alter your your genetics to give you actual insect wings. Ooh. Put on a mask, teenage girl. Let's go beat up some murderers. And she becomes um, his assistant. And they fall in love. Or it's grooming. It's entirely up to you. Uh, That's to say the sixties is a to say the sixties is a different time, as we've all discovered, is not good enough. <laughs> so yeah, uh, Janet becomes his fiance and, and and his wife. So Ant Man and the Wasp, the team that joined the Avengers and is known, the known Marvel Comics team refers to Hank Pym, who is not an old retired man, and his wife Janet. Janet is a, a rich socialite, fashion designer who has her own superhero career. Like, after Hank has three breakdowns in a row and stuff, she she divorces him. She's a seasoned hero. When we did our um, bonus episode on the Secret Wars, Janet the Wasp is leading the Avengers. She's the, the leader of the Avengers. Um, so, basically, she, she has this separate career from Hank, and she never never teams up with Scott Lang. They don't have a partnership at all. Um, so, who is Hope Van Dyne, you might be thinking? Yeah. She's a sort of, but not really, comic book character. Oh, okay. So, in 1999, 
around the same time before Marvel do their Ultimate Comics relaunch and all of that, which which was a big part of the resurgence of the of the of the publisher, Marvel Comics launch a brand new line of comic books that were meant to be exclusive to Walmart supermarkets. So comic books more and more had become something you have to go to a comic book shop to get. Mm. Previously, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, you get them on the newsstand and you get them wherever you buy news magazines and newspapers and you all that sort of stuff. 80s into the 90s, the direct market, the comic book market, takes that over and becomes the place where you get comics. So Marvel had this new arrangement with Walmart. We're going to create a line of comic books to just be, appear in your Walmart supermarkets. That's the only place you can get them. And they are going to be like great jumping on comics for new readers. They're going to be separate from the continuity that's tripping up new readers. Issue 600, yeah, ugh. Yeah. Part, part three of a six-parter. Um, so... And this is targeted at new readers, but the teen market, young teens. It was called MC2, right? And it's set a little bit in the future. So all the modern superhero characters that you know are retired or dead. And it focuses on like the teenage children of characters like Spider-Man and the X-Men and stuff. Mm. And in that series, one of the Avengers is the teenage Cassie Lang, Scott Lang's daughter... And one of the villains is Hank and Janet's daughter, Hope Pym. Right, okay. That's where the Hope name comes from. But MC2 is not regular universe, and she bears little resemblance to this movie character. She's a bad guy, for instance, and mm. she's in the, in, it's, yeah, in the future. So basically, what the movie has done is this. They, they, they wanted to do Scott Lang... Ant-Man instead of Hank Pym Mm. but they also wanted to do the Wasp so they couldn't do Janet Van Dyne because that's Hank Pym's wife right yeah so they they invent a character who is the daughter but is also going to be the only adventuring superhero Wasp we're going to see so that's what they do because they're mixing they're kind of mixing the two Ant-Man worlds almost um the year after the movie comes out, Marvel Comics introduced a Russian character called Nadia Van Dyne. Ah. Nadia is apparently Russian for hope. Uh, she is the long-lost daughter. This is, when I, this is what I'm talking about with Marvel desperately trying to fit movie things into the world that doesn't fit it. Nadia is the long-lost daughter of Hank Pym and his first wife, Maria Trovoya, who was killed by, let's say, the KGB, whoever it was, right? (laughs) Nadia is kidnapped and raised in the Red Room, which is the twisted KGB place that creates the Black Widow. Ah. That that kind of, like, evil... It's like an evil Weapon X Russian... Well, the Weapon X program is evil, but it's like the Russian Mm. Weapon X program. And... Um, so Hank Pym never knew this girl existed and vice versa she never knew she was Hank Pym's daughter so how does Nadia have the last name 
of her long-lost father's second wife. Right? And Marvel need her to have this name in order to weirdly tie her in to a movie character. (laughs) But how is this possible if she's Hank Pym's daughter from another wife? Well, she comes to America and she starts having adventures as the new Wasp. Or is it the what? Yeah. And being a hero. And Janet Van Dyne takes her under her wing. That's a pun. Mm. And teaches her the ropes and how to be a superhero. So when Nadia is applying for US citizenship, she decides to take a new name and she takes the name Van Dyne to pay homage to the first Wasp. Yeah. So Marvel Comics then use her, Nadia Van Dyne, to be Scott Lang's new partner and love interest in a desperate attempt to create some kind of connection to this movie. And I'm done. And I'm done. I, I'm with you. I don't see why they need to do that. I mean, it's it is constant and it is obsessive and it is it is madness. They do it all the time. They, yeah, they, that rarely happens with video games. I've only ever seen it happen very slightly with Tomb Raider and Resident Evil. Like Tomb Raider games, they they say they went like, "Oh, we have to make her look a bit more like Angelina Jolie in the films, and she has to have the same yeah. dance." And in Resident Evil, that understandably, they did the you know. Did you ever see the first Resident Evil film? Yes. Do you, okay, the the scene we all remember, the laser room scene. Right. They put that in one of the games, and it was like there we go. And it was like, but it was like that that level of. Is it okay? To, yeah, that's acceptable. It's fine. It works. It works. It works. <laughs> the, the, the answer to Marvel's problem... Right, here's Marvel's problem. Here's yeah. Marvel Comics' problem, right? Mm. The movies are the biggest thing in the entire world, and they should create new readers. Yes. We are not seeing that in the comic book world. We are not seeing that at all. The comic books... Uh, the, the comic readership is shrinking and shrinking all the time, right? It's been kept alive by the comics, but it's shrinking. The problem they have is that when a movie creates a new reader, Mm -hmm. they go into a comic book shop or they go online or whatever they do these days and they want to read an Avengers comic. Yeah. And the Avengers comic they pick up is issue 600. Or not, they don't do that anymore because they renumber them. It's issue 12. But it is not the world that they have just seen on the screen. Yeah. Right? The Avengers aren't the same. Black Panther is uh, no. So the new so in the team is like Blade and um, a different Ghost Rider they've never seen before, and all of that. They live in a giant, a celestial giant. (laughs) (laughs) So Marvel is like constantly trying to um, like plug the dam Mm. desperately. What can we do to try and give a nod? To try and get the... And the answer is nothing. There's nothing you can do that is not going to be off-putting and intimidating to someone who quite liked a movie and would like to read what Thor does next, right? Because mm. you can't... You, you, you cannot just merge those two things. What Marvel need to do is create comic books that, that just come out when that movie is landed, right? And are just for that audience. A separate universe. The MCU universe is what they need to do. Yeah, the problem with that is you cannot carry those issues on because if you have an adventure 
in between, then the next movie comes out. What are you going to do for the next two years or whatever it is until the next Iron Man movie comes out or the bits in between? You you can't. The more you expand it, the more it doesn't reflect the comic the, the movie world. Yeah, you just need to release a few comics around the time of the movies and then not do anything until the next movie comes out and then do the same and hopefully that's a way to get readers to go oh i'll check out some more of it but they don't they keep doing this we'll turn nick fury black and it's his son and he loses an eye (laughs) and now white nick fury lives on the moon (laughs) and no one speaks of him ever again and then we have a russian long lost daughter with the surname from someone she's not related to anyway god if only sorry. if only there was a service for fans of the film that explained the comics a bit more and told you what to read that's right baby that this would be the point where if we were doing this on video i would stare at the camera, at the camera. right down blankly, that freaking lens right down the lens right down the camera until Ten people. Wink. Ten people have been guilted into signing up the patron. Uh, <laughs> so that's patreon.com slash Marvel versus Marvel. That's the one. We like plugging that, don't we? So uh back to the film. Afterwards, Pim sends Lang to a very risky mission to steal a device from an old Stark warehouse in upstate New York. However, during the Halo drop. Scott realises that, due to old data supplied by Pym, the Stark warehouse is now the new Avengers facility. Scott is found by the Falcon and is forced to fight the Avenger, despite, and despite his inexperience, Scott shrinks down and uses his technical expertise to disable the Falcon's jetpack. Scott manages to escape, but he gets a stern talking to by Hank, who is angry that the entire mission was put in jeopardy by taking on one of the Avengers. Scott reveals that despite the information being bad and things becoming chaotic, he still managed to steal the device they needed. Now, I loved this little crossover because you weren't, you weren't expecting it. You were pretty much accepting that there was going to be nothing to do with the Avengers in this film. And this little crossover made me absolutely beam in the cinema because I was just there going, It was cool, yes. yeah. Oh, yeah, oh, no. <laughs> totally unexpected. There was no hint towards it whatsoever. Brilliant. Yeah, it was cool, man. Very L- cool. Loved it. So do little crossovers happen like this in the comic books or is it just always huge events like Infinity War? Yeah, before before the crossover event, this was what a superhero crossover was like. Mm. Um, it, loads of loads of interaction in the Marvel universe because everyone lives in Manhattan, um, yeah. and 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 it, it makes it feel like a very busy shared universe. DC was a lot more sparring with their crossover stuff. Superman and Batman would team up very often in their own comic book, but it didn't feel the way that Marvel made their universe feel, mm. um, where like there are issues of Spider-Man where Spidey, you know, is sat on a rooftop thinking, or he's web swinging along thinking about how crap his life is, mm. and he sees Thor just fly past him, and he's like, "I wish my life was like that guy's. Like that guy doesn't have my problems." And you know, um, you know, the Avengers need technical help. They all walk across. They all walk down the road to to the Fantastic Four and and get get that kind of technical help. You know, they're, they're, it's a very nice close-knit big shared universe 
But this, like, this is a like a, a real trademark of the superhero crossover is a misunderstanding and the fight because the fans want the fight. They want to see heroes battle it out and to see who might be tougher and stronger and smarter. So there's always a misunderstanding and they have a little brawl and then they can resolve things. And I felt this was very much in that in that vein. No one gets really hurt or anything. No one comes out of it hating the other person, but you just get a fun little fun little fight and then off you go. Yeah. I like those crossover things. It just reminded me of the arguments we used to have as kids playing video games. Like, who would win between Predator and Nemesis from Resident Evil 3? Yeah. And it's like... Yeah, man. Very few... Very very rarely they have video games that, that solve that issue. Very rarely. There's there's something... Um, I mean, well, 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 we'll get to talk a lot more about this in the next MCU movie that we cover, which will be Civil War. Oh so yes, there'll be, there'll be a lot of crossover and a lot of who would win discussions to take place when we get there. Fun, fun! I can't wait to cover that one. So back to the film. Cross perfects the yellow jacket suit and invites Pym to the unveiling. While the unveiling of the yellow jacket suit is taking place, Scott in the Ant Man suit, along with his crew and a swarm of ants, infiltrates the building. Planting explosives and sabotaging all the servers, Scott is prepared to steal the yellow jacket suit. However, he is captured by Cross, who has been expecting this heist all along. I loved that the inside of the server uh, looks like a neon city. This was pointed out. Oh, yeah. So cool. It's so cool. This was pointed out because I I used to religiously listen to Mark Kermode. Uh, Yeah. Uh, I thought got got off him for for a few reasons, but when he was talking about this, he he he, he, he can he can talk very well about Marvel films. And he said he just loved that there's a different world when you shrunk down. It's an completely different world, and they've played with that with this whole thing looking like you're flying through a city. I mean, this is where they yeah. this is where they start taking liberties with the micro world, and there's some really neat artistic choices that I loved. I mean, even the fly, when you see the flying ants. It looks, oh, yeah. looks like a military operation. And this is supposed to be a sneaky heist. And what you're seeing is a scene from Apocalypse Now, but with ants. <laughs> I love it. And, and also, they, 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 there is a little, little musical notes that play along with that. Not, they don't, it's not full on... But there are, there are little musical notes that, that kind of go, oh yeah, military stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You just need that little, little uh, nudge. So... Has a bad guy ever stolen the Ant-Man suit before? Uh, Sit back, Will, and prepare yourself to hear about the third Ant-Man that we're going to talk about. Um, And it it is not like anything else. So, um, Avengers disassembled, Scott Lang dies. There is no Ant-Man. Eric O'Grady is a low-level agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., who stumbles across Hank McCoy? Uh, Hank McCoy. Hank McCoy. <laughs> Hank McCoy. It's the Beast. Yeah. Uh, stumbles across Hank Pym's latest version of the Ant Man suit in the Shield headquarters. So Hank is building this new Ant Man suit, which is going to be given to uh, like a top of the line Shield agent to become the new Ant Man. Mm. So he's going to be a Shield agent, but he's going to have Hank's going to be. You know, showing him how to do everything. Eric O'Grady um, is a man 
of very, very few morals. Mm. He is a man who is he's a shield agent, but he is like he's like in some of the funny um Star Wars uh properties, especially there's a comic book I think called Troopers. He's like he's kind of a low level idiot that just happens to be working for a big organization. Right? Yeah. Eric O'Grady, you think, would probably just as much be working for like Hydra or the Navy as he is for Shield. He's not like a great guy at all. He is very willing to lie and cheat and steal and manipulate to get his selfish needs met. So O'Grady immediately steals the armor. <laughs> the the, the, the Ant Man suit immediately steals it. Um, and his plans are basically to become a superhero quote unquote to stalk women and steal stuff um and that's exactly what the new ant-man does the irredeemable ant-man is the title of the new comic um uh, uh, that he's in a, a running theme with the character is his selfish greed and his kind of his very self-interested ways uh, uh, clashing with this overwhelming desire he has to be accepted by other people. He wants people to like him. He wants people to think he's good and not good, but yeah, to think he's great. To, mm. He wants to be famous. He wants all of that, but he, he will lie and cheat and steal and manipulate to get it. Um, and he, he has this constant thing where he does something really, really terrible. And he's like, I, I, I won't do this anymore. I'm going to change. I'm finally going to live up to my potential. I'm finally going to be the Ant-Man that I know I can be. And then he's right back to being a piece of turd, the next the next <laughs> issue. Um, it's a humorous series, Irredeemable Ant-Man. It's played for laughs that he does all these awful things. It's kind of almost always sunny-ish in that bit where... Yeah. You revel in it, and do you want him to? You do you, you do want to see him get his comeuppance, but also you're kind of along for the fun ride. Yeah, yeah. Um, he always finds a way to justify his terrible behaviors, all all while being a shield agent and and having he has a secret identity. It's right back to having a secret identity, but it's flipped. <laughs> like Shield are trying to catch Ant Man because this new Ant Man stole the suit and is clearly a bad guy. And he is a member of Shield, <laughs> but he's hiding it. So he he, he 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 steals, he cheats. He literally one of the first things he does is spy on women in the shower. Yeah, um, he stalks Captain Marvel, Carol Danvers, um, and it's very gross. Um, he's a fun character. It's 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 interesting to see him get worse and worse. So to begin with, he's a shady, gross character. Try not to get caught by the authorities in the framework of a, of, of a system that is ran by Tony Stark or Nick Fury or Steve Rogers, because those are the heads of like mm. shields that come and go. But then with them out of the picture, during Dark Reign, as we've alluded to several times, Norman Osborn running runs Shield. And suddenly things are very different with Eric O'Grady. Because it's one thing to be this gross, dark, uh, this gross kind of thiefy character in a framework where there's lots of good people doing good things. It's another thing to be forced to join Norman Osborn's secret hit squad. 
and suddenly he is terrified of his boss and what he's being asked to do and how far will Eric go can he redeem himself under this is he going to get is he just going to get worse and worse now he can murder and get away with it is he going to get worse fun fun character fun series and shows what awful things would happen if the Ant-Man suit was in were in the wrong hands so back to the story in front of his captives cross sells both the Ant-Man and yellow jacket suits to the terrorist organizations Hydra and the 10 Rings Hank pleads with Cross to not sell the technology to Michael Carson. Sorry, is it Mitchell Carson? Mitchell Carson. Mitchell Carson. From the start, yeah. A former S.H.I.E.L.D. operative and now a power-hungry Hydra agent. Cross explains to Carson that whilst he has the Ant-Man in yellow jacket suits, Cross will control the supply of Pym particles to Hydra, making him very rich, sorry, very rich for years to come. Lang breaks free from his trap, fights the Hydra agents, and chases after the escaped Cross. But in the chaos, Mitchell Carson manages to escape with Cross's Pym particles. Then, the plant had explosive detonate, and then reacting with the Pym particles in the lab, the whale thing implodes and shrinks away into nothing. I think that's meant to be the whole the thing. The whole thing. You, you know when you do that thing where you just read, and, and any typos, you just go, that's... I'll, I'll do things. So the whole thing <laughs> explodes and shrinks away into nothing. So I'm going to come back to what I was talking about earlier. He says the line, this is not who you are. It's the particles altering your brain chemistry. I find it odd. I, the whole thing about the shrinking causing insanity, I don't think it is explained. And They don't spend much time on it, do they? No. no and they, we, don't, we don't see, there's not a scene that shows how nice David Cross David Cross used to be, nope. and him and Pim used to be good friends or anything. So perhaps it just wasn't time. I I would have been interested in seeing that, possibly a deleted scene, or if they just went with, look, he wants money, he's gone power power mad. You know, it's that's that is such a simple narrative, you know, a narrative motivation, isn't it? Yeah, I guess so. I, I think perhaps they were trying to uh, do something a bit different to the first Iron Man film. Maybe they yeah. maybe they were concerned that they just had another Ironmonger yeah. on their hands, and maybe we talk about. Uh, I, I I can very much understand that something that, that has this wild science fiction effect on your body would. It's not. It's not like a premise that I think we'd reject. No, I, I just. Um, and we do know, uh, I, I did think, oh, perhaps they were trying to explain why he needs the cool helmet. But we've already got that. It is to control the ants and, you know, and he can talk to insects and things. So it, they don't need to explain the, the cool helmet, do they? So who knows? Yeah, I, I would have appreciated that. So also, also, Mitchell Carson, I forgot about this as well. I, I forgot what happened to him. So he just runs off with the pin particles. Is he someone who, who we should know? We see him at the start of the movie, don't we? Yeah. The, uh, uh, Hank Pym breaks his face, and then when we see him later on, uh, Pym says to him something like, how's your face? Yeah. Um, he is one of the main characters in the the Eric O'Grady Irredeemable Ant-Man series. Hmm. So it's interesting they've used that name. Yeah. He's not. He's not like he is in this, where he he obviously went. We we can we can assume that after Winter Soldier, when when Shield like 
fell apart and was revealed to be all the dodgy stuff about Hydra was revealed. Presumably, um, he'd been a dodgy Hydra agent all along since the the past at the start of this film. If that makes sense, mm. does that make sense? Yeah, so, but- start of this film is in the past, and he could be. You go, oh, he's a a nasty Shield agent, mm. and then by the present day, we know that thanks to Winter Soldier. Hydra were frippling everywhere, so now he works for Hydra. I guess he was one all along. Um, in 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 the Irredeemable Ant Man series, he's the Shield agent who was hand picked by Hank Pym to wear the new Ant Man suit and become the Super Shield agent, the Ant Man Shield agent. Um, so he is really angry when O'Grady steals the suit. Um, Carson is the one tracking Grady down and leading the hunt to get the Ant-Man suit back because it's like you've stolen my chance to be a superhero and to be famous um, and he, he fights him to take the suit back because he uncovers that it is this little toe rag that he knows this terrible rubbish shield agent low ranking shield agent Eric O'Grady and he doesn't tell anyone because he wants to beat the crap out of him and steal it back but during the fight um, Carson gets half his face burned off. He loses an eye. He loses his ear, and it twi- it flips him, man. And he and he starts to have like this. Um, it starts to be a little bit like uh, you know the 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 doctor chasing Michael Myers and Halloween, or it's or it's um, Moby Dick and Captain Ahab. It's just a thirst for revenge now, and he's got to catch him no matter what the odds. And he gets m- more and more insane as he um, as time goes by, and he's trying to catch O'Grady and prove what's going on. And at the end of it, though, uh, O'Grady is able to frame Mitchell Carson for all of all of his crimes as Ant-Man. <laughs> he is able to turn him over to S.H.I.E.L.D. And, and position it so that this was the dodgy Ant-Man that stole the suit and stalked women and stole things and all of that. So not a good end for Mitchell Carson in the, um, in the comics. Oh, dear. So, back to the film. Cross dons the yellow jacket suit. Scott traps Cross in a bug zapper, but before he can sabotage his suit, he is tased and arrested by Paxton. Cross escapes and holds Scott's daughter Cassie as a hostage to lure Lang to him. At Cassie's house, Scott fights Cross using size-changing discs to both shrink and grow household objects to use as weapons. One of Scott's ants becomes the size of a big dog as Scott and Cross do battle amongst Cassie's toy train set. Scott is overpowered by the yellow jacket suit and is unable to defeat Cross. As a last effort, Scott ignores all the dangers Hank warned him about, disables his subatomic regulator and shrinks down to a subatomic size. Going so small, he is finally able to penetrate and sabotage the yellow jacket suit. With no regulator to control their size changing, Scott and Cross both shrink uncontrollably in the nothingness of the subatomic quantum realm. Cross shrinks down so small he implodes and disappears. I I liked this fight scene as it balanced a serious, you know, mano a mano scenario, but also the whole constantly shrinking onto a toy train yeah. set is just great. Really, and getting the giant, the getting the giant ant, and things shrinking and growing and stuff it was really cool. That that worked really well. Also. <laughs> they use the line 
why don't you pick on someone your own size? And I just thought, they were always waiting to use that line. They were waiting yeah. for the perfect moment to say that line, and I'm happy they did. <laughs> it's just like, it's the, it's, the, it's, the, it's the elephant in the room of lines to say in this sort of film. Uh, also, I, I, it's also nice to know that Americans have Thomas the Tank Engine as well, because you always think of that as a British yeah, thing. Yeah, that, that, well, because it is, and that always fascinates me. That always fascinates me, that, that it's such a such an export that it's uh, yeah recognised like that yeah because R- Ringo started the voice for Thomas I was Tank say, yeah that was but I, I I do wonder does Ringo do the because Americans no offence guys but you like to redo everything with an American accent they so did I wonder if Ringo does do the voice no 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 they, they did and guess who played did the voice if I remember right George Carlin George Carlin did the voice well. I, I, I'm no longer angry because that's quite nice actually I that think is, I'd quite like to hear that I, yeah. I'll have to confirm that but I think it was George Carlin and I, 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 I love George Carlin so I thought it was a nice touch so you said Darren Cross wasn't really a major villain in the comic books but what about the yellow jacket I mean is that a villain invented for the movie or is that another alter ego of someone 1968, okay, uh, a, a cocky, arrogant new superhero arrives in New York and makes a big splash, taking down thieves and crooks, um, and this is Yellow Jacket. Our, our first indication that this guy is bad news is the fact that J. Jonah Jameson loves him. <laughs> puts puts him on the front cover, a glowing piece. This is the hero we need. That means something's wrong. Because <laughs> that's just, that's whatever, you know, J. Jamer, he, he's just, if he loves someone, there's bad news. The Avengers are having a meeting and everyone's like, uh, Hank's not there, where is he? And then Yellow Jacket breaks into Avengers Mansion and brags that he has just come from murdering Hank Pym. And he tells them that he attacked Pym in his lab um, shrunk Pym to a tiny size and then basically threw him without his uh, helmet to control the ants, threw him to be eaten by a house spider <laughs> and he's like, why don't you let me join the team? I've killed one of your members so you've got a hole on the roster um, and uh, the Avengers are all try to beat the crap out of him. He kidnaps the wasp, starts making out with her after just admitting that he's murdered her husband, uh, and flies off with her. The Avengers catch up with him, finally, at City Hall. And they are all the Avengers are about to pummel the crap out of Yellow Jacket when the Wasp stops them in their tracks by saying, you can't, I'm about to marry him. And that's like the end... That's an end-of-issue cliffhanger. So you come back the next issue, and, and, and the Avengers have agreed to have the wedding at their mansion. A priest arrives, there's a cake. Hawkeye is going off his nuts. <laughs> what are you all doing? Everyone else is like, it's Jan's decision. If she wants to marry a murderer, now her husband's dead. She's legally allowed to do it. Um, <laughs> and then the wedding is attacked by, by your favourite by my favourite, oh. by everyone's favourite. It's the Circus of Crime, baby. The Circus of Crime are in town, making their, like, 19th appearance on this show. 
the circus of crime attack all of the Avengers, which is like me attacking Tyson Fury. Um, who's is in the circus uh, of crime again? A, a, a woman with a snake. Uh, two jugglers, <laughs> genuinely two jugg- acrobatic jugglers. The ringmaster who has a hypnotic top hat. It's mental. I, I was um, expecting Stiltman. No, oh, of course, yeah, no. Stiltman, Stilt, Stiltman's way too smart for this. <laughs> way, first, first of all, Avengers Mansion is on the ground floor, so he's not at his best. He's <laughs> um, <laughs> it's below him, literally. <laughs> Gen- genuinely, yeah. Uh, so, so during the, the 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 deadly attack by the circus of crime, yeah. uh, Jan's life is threatened and she might be put in danger. Yellow Jacket loses control and suddenly grows into a giant, ripping his costume and mask and revealing himself to be Hank Pym. And the fight ends and Pim's a bit woozy and he explains that he's been experimenting in his lab and some chemicals went off and he breathed them in and it induced and I'm directly quoting the comic book here (laughs) chemical schizophrenia giving him a brand new person this is full on soap opera this is like full days of our lives soap opera stuff he gave him a brand new personality and he built a brand new costume and everything. And Jan explains that, that she knew straight away it was Hank and played along with things because she didn't know what was going on and she was scared and hoped for the best. And then Hank Pym is like, I'm just going to keep the Yellow Jacket name and costume. I love it. I love it. Yellow Jacket. That's me now. The I was a cocky asshole, and I told you all I'd murdered Hank. I love it. <laughs> so th- this this is like the beginning of, of of Hank Pym's really rich and wild, crazy roller coaster of a, of a life. He starts to battle depression and gets kicked off the Avengers and tries to fake an attack on the Avengers to make himself a hero. Goes broke. Hits Jan. Ooh. She leaves him. He has a series of breakdowns. Marvel in the present day would would eventually retcon all of this into Hank Pym having bipolar disorder. And they they they've made all his crazy stories a battle with mental health. Okay. Um it's also used to explain Ultron in many ways because when Pym created Ultron, he used his own brain patterns to create Ultron. So that sort of is uh, suggesting that Ultron is twisted because Pym is twisted. Um, Hank Pym, for my money, I think is the most interesting, wild, and fascinating character in all of Marvel Comics. Because he has this... He, he almost predates the Marvel superhero age, and then he's there, and then he keeps changing identities... And he never feels good enough to be a superhero. I don't. I don't think he's like a good person particularly, mm. <laughs> but he's a really fascinating character, and he does all this wild stuff. He has goes up and down. He's hero. He's villain. Um, it's 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 really really. And hopefully one day we'll do a bonus episode charting all of it. Um, I will say here now, and I feel this is important. This is not the best representation of mental health or bipolar disorder. <laughs> Marvel. Marvel Comics presenting it as something that makes people go crazy and basically be evil or whatever 
is really, really insensitive and tasteless, but that's what Marvel did. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. Anyway, back to the film. Scott fighting unconsciousness and hearing Cassie calling for him finds the will to escape and puts a disc with enlarging pin particle formula inside the suit's regulator and switches it back on, successfully reverting to his original size. Witnessing the heroism of Lang, Paxton covers up for him and wriggles him out of serving time. Scott remembers nothing of his experience in the quantum realm, with Pym believing the human mind might not be able to process it. Seeing that Scott survived the quantum realm, Pym wonders if his wife is still alive. I loved the quantum realm scene. It was, yeah. it was just, it was like 2001 A Space Odyssey, the end of that. It was just hit the, a barrage of hypnotizing images constantly flowing at you in a natural way. And it was just, I could watch that for, I could watch that for an hour. Just that. I felt, yeah, I felt story-wise it, it was similar to the end of um, Big Hero 6. I never where, saw that. Ah. Oh, we'll go no further then. We'll cover it because it's a Marvel, it's a Marvel comics I'll save it property. for them, yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay, God. then I'll move on. <laughs> I, I, I was kind of reminded of uh, Doctor Strange, uh, retrospectively reminded, because of course Doctor Strange... I was going to say, we, we haven't covered it yet. But, no, 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 uh, but, yes, haven't covered it, but it came out after. But I, when I went back to it, I went, oh, this is kind of like Doctor Strange, and that was a good argument for this is, this is what CGI stuff should be used for over practical effects, stuff you yeah. really can't do. And this kind of constantly evolving image was definitely uh, an argument for CGI. <laughs> Yeah. So it does sound like a cheesy old comic book name, the Quantum Realm. Does it appear in the Marvel comics? The Quantum Realm, as a name, doesn't. But <laughs> um, Marvel's had a micro universe since before it was the Marvel universe. Since before the Marvel Age, it it, it dates back to 1943, mm. when Timely Comics were publishing Captain Marvel stories. Um, there's an issue where Cap and Bucky are attacked by giants. And one of the women that they know turns out to be the princess of a micro world called Mita. Mita the micro world, or Mita. And they they get shrunken down, and then they travel to Mita, and they battle a warlord who has size changing technology and use it to create giants in the real world. And Mita is destroyed. The whole planet goes crashing into its own version of a sun. Cap and Bucky get back to the real world and. And become you know regular sized again, and they save a couple of citizens. Then in the sixties, uh, Fantastic Four issue sixteen, uh, Reed Richards and the gang keep getting shrunk to insect size at really terrible times, and uh, and and nearly dying by being sucked into air vents and stuff. Uh, so Reed borrows Hank Pym's size changing formula. Now up to this point, Fantastic Four issue sixteen. Hank Pym, his formula makes him the size of an ant or an insect. Yeah, yeah. He can also go big if he wants to. Hmm. Reed Richards uh, spends like maybe two hours, maybe the maybe maybe a full afternoon with Hank Pym's uh, size changing formula, and immediately makes it like nine hundred times more powerful. <laughs> <laughs> now, now Reed has glanced at it. It 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 it, it now has the power to shrink. You to be smaller than atoms, not just insect size, but like Reed just 
just on a whim, has created a way to freaking leave reality as we know it by shrinking. And so the Fantastic Four become microscopic and enter the world of Subatomica. Again, still not called the Quantum Realm. And Subatomica mm. is like another world, a shrunken world where, with planets and all of that. Gorgeous 60s sci-fi Marvel name as well. Subat- the, wor- the realm of Subatomica. Yeah. So it's not like this nothingness space. It's like it's like shrunken world. There are whole other worlds mm. and universes that exist in between atoms in that, small, that very small space. Yeah. Um, and the Fantastic Four, when they shrunk down, realized they're inside a castle. A castle in Subatomica. And lo and behold, who's sitting on the throne... It's Doctor Doom. Oh, he shrunk himself so. down. He conquered this micro world, and now he's using it to screw with the FF. So that, that that's a whole thing. Later, the, the yeah, you want to say something? I was about to say you just said the FF. I did the FF Fantastic Four. Is is that a yep. is that a, is that a colloquialism? An accepted? Have I not done that? Sorry. Yeah, the FF. I, I'm sure I did it in the in the movie. Yeah, the no, FF. I, I don't I don't remember anyone saying the FF. Yeah, I might, I might have, I, I do it in my notes to save space, I, but also I like that's what it. they're. I like that's it. the like nice it. little, nice little informal nickname for the team, the FF. So later in the sixties, the Fantastic Four, FF, are, are attacked by a recurring villain from Subatomica, the Psycho Man. <laughs> speaking of Marvel's, speaking of Marvel's delicate handling of terms, oh, Psycho Man, the Psycho Man. What do you think Psycho Man's powers are? Uh, dressing up as his mother. Oh, that would be good. Uh, it might predate that, but he, he uh, uses powerful technology to control people's emotions. He can make you very scared or angry or make you go psycho. Um, we learn that he's from Subatomica, but not the same planet, like one of the other planets, if Subatomica. Um, but Marvel's micro worlds really came to prominence in the 1970s when Marvel signed a deal with a toy company, Mego, who you'll know if you watched any of the excellent um, The Toys That Made Us uh, documentary series on, on Netflix, which is great. Mego, who did handle um, loads of Marvel and DC toys in the 60s and 70s, um, and Marvel signed his deal to create comics based on their toy line, the Micronauts. Hmm. So, um, the the Micronauts, uh, Mego adapted the, these toys from a Japanese toy line, which is part of the course with Transformers and all of that. Japan have their own fantastic toy lines. American toy companies buy the rights and change the names, but take the toys, right? So, there's a Japanese toy line called the Micromen which were robotic action figures that had been in existence under loads of different names in, in Japan in, in the 1970s. Um, and the Mego, toy, the Mego toy line, the Micronauts, was an attempt to take like these robotic... They didn't transform, but they were like transformer-like robotic toys of people and characters and stuff and give them like a sci-fi Star Wars-style story and background and push over here Mm. and the marvel comics was the way of doing that you can't sell a toy line if you don't have a tv show a movie or a comic book so the 1979 marvel published the micronauts 
um, which is the it's kind of science fiction and, and, and fantasy elements which Marvel do very very well the story of like evil Baron Kaza who puts on black armor and conquers the imaginatively titled home world where are you from I'm from the home world oh what's it called Homeworld. Um, he he murders the royal family, raises armies, and he's opposed by an astronaut who wakes up from like a Book Rogers style three hundred years sleep. Um, and this guy's uh, Ran, uh, Commander Ran, and Commander Ran puts together a team of you know rebels to oppose Baron Kaza, the Micronauts, and as part of their adventures, they travel to the Marvel universe where they end up being. The size of action figures, which you know, kind of ties into the whole. There we go. If you buy them, if you play with them, that's how big they would actually be in the real world. So that's kind of a nice little sales tip on it. Um, they encounter Man Thing in in the Marvel Universe and Captain Universe and stuff like that. They had crossovers with the X Men, and they managed to continue the popularity as a comic book even after. Mego go bankrupt in the night in 1980, one year after they start doing the comic. Um, so that that goes on, but once the the comic book ended, the rights to the team and the characters become questionable. So some of the characters weren't based on any of the. So a lot of the characters, like Baron Kaza, Commander Ran, those are like Mego toys. So they don't like owned by um by marvel but some of the other characters weren't and and they are marvel comic creations that they still own for example the the alien insect thief bug has also been a member of the guardians of the galaxy Hmm. as well as the micronauts and in fact it even appeared in an early draft of the movie but didn't quite make the final cut but he was considered to be he was going to be on the original team um whereas you know Commander Ran and those ones, the Micronauts. I think even the name Micronauts is not owned by Marvel Comics. Now, I've I've seen some people say that Marvel can't use the phrase Microverse because that's not something that they own. So Disney can't use it in this movie. Which is why... They they have different names for things like inner space and mm. subatomic and stuff like that. And apparently, the phrase "quantum realm" was chosen by the science advisor on Ant Man, um, Doctor uh, Mechalicus, um, which sounds like a villain name, Doctor <laughs> Mechalicus. Um, but I'm sure is a lovely person. I I don't know about that. I've I've definitely seen microverse. I've 100 percent seen microverse used in Marvel comics. After the seventies, I've seen it used in in several several times, but maybe who owns, who owns the copyright maybe to it. Who owns the copyright to the microverse? Is it? Yeah, we don't know. That's the problem because Mego went bankrupt, right? So they are not an entity, but perhaps some of their um, some of their assets were purchased by another company. So that could be a possibility. Yeah, it makes sense. Maybe it's contentional. I've definitely seen microverse used. Since since then, in in modern storylines like Earth X and Universe X, have used it. Mm. Um, so I don't know. I don't know about that. Perhaps Disney just didn't think it was worth it. You know. I think Quantum Quantum Realms a much better term. I like that. Oh, I disagree. I disagree. Microverse is way cooler than Quantum Realm. Quantum Realm is is just 
Nah. You, it's too sciencey, isn't it? It's too sciencey. Um, it's just it doesn't sound cool. Microverse sounds cool. The end. I, I, I don't think microverse sounds cool. I think it sounds a bit cutesy and childish. I think I think quantum realm sounds like a nineteen fifties. The trapped <laughs> in the quantum realm. That's what that sounds like. Microverse sounds does sound kind of like new, like seventies, eighties, hip sci-fi. Microverse, microverse, microverse sounds like something you play on Mario Kart. The next track is in the microverse where they're all tiny. We want to hear from you then, uh, Marvel versus Marvel at gmail.com or tweeters at Marvel versus what's better, Quantum Realm or Microverse. We'll throw up a, a Twitter poll uh, when this comes out in general release. So, mon- so if you're listening to it Monday or beyond, head over and we'll put a Twitter poll up there. Quantum Realm or Microverse, what sounds better? Fantastic. Okay, we're at the last bit of the film now. Months later, Louis informs sorry, Lewis informs Lang that the Avengers are looking to recruit him following a recommendation from the Falcon. After Scott's departure, Pym reveals the upgraded prototype of the Wasp suit to Hope, offering it to her. To which she replies, It's about damn time. A year later in Berlin, Steve Rogers and Sam Wilson have found Bucky Barnes. Needing help but unable to contact Tony Stark because of the Sokovia records, Wilson states that he knows a guy. I didn't see the post credit sequence when I previously watched Ant-Man for some bizarre reason. And I only saw it now and then, oh, right, okay, okay. Because I was totally surprised when Ant-Man pops up later. Oh really? Even though they say that they're looking for you, like the yeah, Avengers looking to recruit him. I, I yeah, I just thought they were going to put him on ice for whenever they needed. Uh, uh, I, course, I thought it right. was just a, a way of going. By the um, way, yeah. he's now part of the MCU properly because the Avengers obviously want to recruit him. Got I you, didn't know you. they were going. There was that specificness to it, but yeah, I I love that Luis has a network so big <laughs> it stretches to the Avengers. <laughs> Like, Luis is able to pass this information on because it comes through friends of friends, of contacts, of hairdressers, of buddies, of pals. Like, Luis has got a direct, not a direct line, but he's got a convoluted line to Tony Stark or Steve Rogers or well, whatever. Uh, well, uh, six awesome. degrees of separation, isn't it? Six degrees is the theory. Of course, six, yeah. Six, but I like, I like the way it's used here, and I love the fact that they use the montage right at the end his recap montage because that was a fantastic callback joke that was such a brilliant callback joke because you see the montage first time and you go ah i really enjoyed that but they went no we're not doing it again till the end of the film i thought that was a really good way of doing it because you could get sick of that too much it's like uh when you watch uh, x-men days of future past and you watch a quicksilver scene which is arguably the best thing about that movie is quicksilver's scene where he goes and high speed slow motion and then they do exactly the same thing again in the next film and it's like feels arbitrary now <laughs> yeah if they probably do it again in phoenix and i'll probably say pretty tired but yeah um also i like the fact it says during the recap it says we got a guy who can swing we got a guy who can climb and it's like yeah they're, t- they're talking about spider-man aren't they yeah yeah didn't know that they were, they were just starting to tee up the trailers for civil war <sighs> Where because it was coming out around the same time, 
the trailers for Civil War and the same time as Ant-Man. And, of course, the trailers are the ones, the teaser trailer, mm. that introduced the whole world, all of us, to the new Spider-Man, the new look and all of that, which was a very exciting time. Didn't see it coming. When that trailer hit, trailer hit I almost yelled. I, 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 had to, I was at work and I had to hold it back because I, I didn't expect that at all. There were no inklings, didn't hear anything, and suddenly I'm seeing this, and I got so excited. But we'll talk about that when it comes to Civil we've got, War. We, we, will, we were doing Civil War later this year, so we've got all of that to look mm. forward to. So, Will, that is the end of Phase 2 of the MCU. We finally put Phase 2 to bed. What did you make of Ant-Man, considering how you went into this? And, you know, the thoughts of it's a silly hero and you're not sure about Paul Rudd and and all of, all of that. What, what did you think? What are your final thoughts on this film? I, I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it. I, I, I regret not seeing the second Ant-Man film in the cinema, but I saw this one in the cinema and I came away loving it. Uh, me and, as I've told you before, me and my mum, uh, we watched the Marvel films together. Yeah, and she big loved shout out to Sue, this. big 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 supporter of this podcast. <laughs> Indeed, she's she's she was messaging me the other day saying, "Oh, I just listened to the Daredevil episode. It's really funny." <laughs> she's slowly <laughs> catching up, and I said, "Oh, Fab. watch the Netflix series of Daredevil." But yeah, uh, she absolutely loved everything about Ant Man and. Uh, when it came to Ant-Man being, you know, in the more Avengers films, uh, I think I think we watched it with um, Ant-Man when, one time at Christmas with my mum uh, and my, my her other half and his sister and his sister. So it's all three of us, and they loved Ant-Man. And when it came to Ant-Man popping up and expect, you know, in Civil War, they all went, "Yay!" <laughs> That's all of us at Christmas <laughs> going, "Yay, Ant-Man!" <laughs> So yeah, great. it's a very special place. Very special place for Ant Man. It's a great film. I, yeah, I, 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 I think. I mean, I think it's 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 better than some. It's better than I think almost all of the Thor movies. Yep. It's better than like Iron Man three. Yep. Um, it's a uh, it's a good it's a good class in in the in the in the first two phases, and uh, yeah, very nice and differently paced movie. <laughs> Before we get to the reading list and let you know all the fantastic uh, Ant-Man comic books that you can get your hands on, the best ways of uh, enjoying some of the things and stories that we've talked about, we're going to give you a little uh, an- anticipatory sneak peek and prepare you for the next episode. Now, we decided to throw this one in. Th- this year, part of our returning to the MCU is going to be taking a very special, more in-depth look at some of the MCU characters. So... There are going to be episodes where, rather than recap um, um, a movie, we're going to take a more in-depth look at some characters that we perhaps didn't get the chance to dedicate a huge amount of, or or as much time to the character as a whole as we would have liked to. Because you get caught up with these movies in the action of, is that a character from the comic? Is that a character from the comic? What we're going to spend some time doing is taking a bit more of an of an in-depth, broad, big-picture look at your favourite MCU characters. And we've decided, because there's so much talk and chatter going on about it, that we're going to start that with not so much of an obvious place, but since everyone's going mad for WandaVision, the next episode, me and Will are going to be sitting down and taking a look at uh, Wanda 
and Vision, Scarlet Witch and Vision. We're going to take... Um, we didn't get a huge amount of time, really, in Age of Ultron. Age of Ultron is so packed, so busy with stuff going on, Will, that we didn't really get to spend much time talking about Wanda, the Scarlet Witch, and the Vision. We didn't really get time to talk about their connection at all. So that's what we're going to do. The next episode is going to be a special look we're not going to do spoilers for the rest of the MCU because we're going to keep where we are in in our in our journey. So, but we're going to we're going to use what is happens in in Age of Ultron to kind of spin us off and we're going to give you a nice in-depth look at the character of the Scarlet Witch, the character of the Vision. I have not seen WandaVision, okay? So, that way I am not going to be able to know what I am uh, I'm, I'm not going to lead you in any direction I'm going to be giving you a, a bigger in-depth look at these characters in the comic books and how that has inspired their creation and some of the things they do in the MCU that's going to be the next episode it's going to be the perfect way the perfect accompaniment to WandaVision. You're, you're going to get the inside track. You're going to get the skinny. And who knows what some of the comic book stories, which ones might be influencing and uh, might be influencing the, the WandaVision series and whatever mystery is going on there. I do not know. And I haven't begun to watch it yet. So it's a nice way of us being able to do that. You will be able to check this out, get the full facts and history on wonder on vision and prepare your mind and maybe start the little bubbles in your mind from going maybe it's this maybe it's that maybe they're doing this so that's what we're going to be doing in the next episode of marvel versus marvel it's going to be an in-depth look into wonder and vision uh reading lists this is what you're all still here for <laughs> For some of Hank Pym's wilder, crazy moments, check out a collection called Ant-Man slash Giant-Man Growing Pains. It's got stories featuring Ant-Man, uh, Goliath, his time as Yellow Jacket and Ant-Man and Giant-Man. It, it reprints original stories, so that's really cool. There, there then is a modern, uh, a, a pretty good modern retelling of Hank Pym's uh, origins, which tries to make sense of his past and make it seem more normal and less 60s, 70s insanity. That's called Ant-Man Astonishing Origins. That one's cool. Swig of water for the working man. <laughs> for Scott Lang, I highly, highly, highly recommend Nick Spencer's awesome collection, The Astonishing Ant-Man. Written around the time the movie came out and Marvel had pretty, pretty much had to put the focus on the Ant-Man character had to bring him back from the dead. So it did some some good help there. My personal favourite Scott Lang stories take place in a series called FF. They turn the informal nickname into the title of the comic, FF, which is where Scott Lang as Ant-Man has to put together and lead a replacement team of the Fantastic Four. It's really fun writing by Matt Fraction, who's a great, great writer. Gorgeous pop art style work um, by the legendary Mike Alrad. Uh, check out FF Volume 1, Fantastic Foe. F-A-U-X, Fantastic Foe. Um, and also, uh, if you like the idea of uh, an 
like a, a just a terrible dude having Ant Man powers. Uh, you can you can get irredeemable Ant Man. Start with volume one, and that's by Walking Dead creator Robert Kirkman. Um, as ever, we we sincerely urge you, please do not use Amazon to purchase your um, your comic books. Uh, it's it's terrible for the comic book industry. Um, please, please, please. You, you there are so many brick and mortar comic book stores out there near you in your in your neighbourhood. I you know just the other day was my birthday. I transferred a fat healthy wadge to my local comic book store, and I'll be doing click and collect uh, during the pandemic because the stores are not open. But I've I'll be transferring funds and ordering things and buying from them and. Even if you're not using bricks and mortar ones that are near you, there are loads of great online comic book shops that will deliver to your door just as conveniently in a few days, you know, less than a week. You can pay securely on all these, most of these places, you know, with PayPal and things like that. That's what to do. Support comic book shops, retailers, support the distributors, support the comic book industry. Please don't use Amazon. Not even being paid for that one. Just go out there and do it. Uh, So that brings us to the end. Of another episode of Marvel versus Marvel. We've got that fantastic wonder and vision introspective deep dive in the next episode to look forward to. If you've got any questions about wonder, any questions about vision, drop us a line, Marvel versus Marvel at gmail.com. And don't forget to head over to Patreon for fantastic bonus episodes. Patreon.com slash Marvel versus Marvel. Thanks for listening to Marvel vs. Marvel. Please take the time to like us, rate us, give us five stars, leave a review, subscribe, and hey, why not recommend us to a friend of yours who loves Marvel movies or Marvel comics? Marvel.